Um, so we just finished up recording with Dr. Kevin Lowe from uh, Ulster University. Dietetics is his thing. Mm. Diet is his thing. Sweeteners is his thing. He's so big he's into the sweeteners. Well, so he says, anyway. We didn't actually hit him for a certificate. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been a charlatan just on. Uh, we need to uh, start checking that. <laughs> <laughs> Asking for a referral. <laughs> to be fair, he did have us on the university. Uh. <laughs> Been a belter, but we were just walking around the three of us. And nobody <laughs> knew either one is. <laughs> Jump on this machine here. We'll see what that does. <laughs> well, actually, we didn't cover much on the Bob Pod and the the actual discussion that yeah. we had. Oh, I uh, with Kevin. Uh, no, I we didn't Kevin. Really talk about it at all, did we? No. Uh, so basically, for anyone listening, Kevin invited us up to do a um, body composition assessment in the Bob Pod, <clears throat> which I'm sure you've seen pictures of Blaine on it. Uh. It looks like he's Elon Musk sent him to Mars. <laughs> uh, uh. The the idea behind the ball pod is it works with your body fat composition. Mm. And it's actually, it's really simple the way it works. There's a big chamber of air in the back and a chamber of air in the front. And you step under it and, uh, sorry, it records the amount of air in the chamber first of all. And then you get under it and it records the amount of air that has been displaced under the chamber in the back, mm. and they just basically use that to calculate your your uh, body fat. Yeah. That's it. Calculate your lean mass too, though, and your visceral fat, which is the fat on your organs. Ah, so they used to um, they used to use water for it. Um, they still do, I think. Still do. As far as I know. Um, well, it's just a, a more advanced right. piece of technology rather than um, submerging yourself in water. You submerge yourself in air. Which we do every day. Anyway, so, <laughs> uh, so uh, that was it. It was good. Uh, turned out I'm a fat bastard. Twenty <laughs> percent body fat. What? I couldn't believe that. Twenty percent body fat. Eighty percent shit. Buddy, what would you be? Body when fat I, percentage. When I do like yalbers, I'm about nine or ten. Nine or ten. Um. Well, in the initial assessment we got done at the start. I was only 16% body fat, so I put on 4% body fat since I started this train. From when? From Idonophy? From the lactic acid threshold test. Oh, I like Albers. Hmm. Yeah, but it's a different test. What's more accurate? Take it, the machine's more yeah. accurate. Far more accurate. Um, so what was it back then? <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> you're like Peter uh, Griffin. Uh, I don't want to say it. You let yourself go. Start looking back at photos of me. <laughs> pure denial. <laughs> uh uh, we're going to go back up in January for the ball pot again. Was right. I telling you that? They, they, uh, so the we're going to go back you? up. I know uh, was about it. Uh, no, they were saying when I got, just when I got out of the ball pot. Right, says we'll bring you back in January and see the difference. So that's what we, we um, incentive they train for. Yeah. Um, not that I need one. <laughs> got the rest they train for. Um, so I, aside from that, we've actually got invited up for another study. Yeah. Um, on sports psychology so I'm really looking forward to that that starts in January again as well a uh, six week process we don't know what Not much about it uh, as far as we know it's they're going to try and use some sort of psycho- psycho- psychological <laughs> psychological techniques to see if it'll improve um, endurance performance and performance in endurance athletes uh, so, uh, so it'll be interesting but good to be part of a, an actual scientific study, study. Uh, just hopefully we don't end up in the control group and get absolutely nothing out <laughs> <laughs> but you still get all the testing uh, worst case scenario you'll get all of the fat performance testing uh, 
So, I wonder what sort of techniques they'll give me. Be like Darren Brown. Aye, that's what, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> you hear this wee noise and you're just ready to go. <laughs> Aye, so Dr. Nolbrick, he's agreed to have a chat with us anyway. Mm. I wasn't... I wasn't clear if he's if he meant on the podcast or a a coffee, but um, either way, would, even if he doesn't if he doesn't want to come down, we could ah. always take a wee remote recording device up and ah, well we'll we'll be up there six weeks on the trot anyway, so we can we can sort something out. Um, and he's a former ultra runner anyway, so mm. um, if anything, you know, he'll have plenty of tips for us. So looking forward to that. It's rare that you get someone who. Is that working on the field the way he is? Plus, he's on the other side of the fence too. And he's like, say, training. You know, you get a sports scientist who's also very high level athlete. Ah, so the the academic intelligence and the practical experience mm. to back it up. Um. Uh, so really looking forward to that. Um. See what comes of it. We'll we'll keep you all posted on how we're getting on. If I lose my mind or not in these untested studies <laughs> <laughs> the donations donations I saw in our wee donation on the altruism page from Megan Lynch um, Megan works for me so thanks very much for that I, I just actually seen it there today I, d- I don't know how long ago she put it on I haven't checked the altruism page in about two weeks so it could have went on ages ago um, but thanks very much for that um, if anybody else wants to make a donation you can find the link to the altruism page on our Facebook page, our Instagram page, uh, or aidendorthyfitness.com. It's all there. You can't miss it. Um, it's coming up to Christmas too, so throw us a wee donation. Uh, you lousy bastards. <laughs> you lousy bastards. I feel like we're missing some. Hi, if we've missed it, we'll cover it in the next one. Yeah. Right, here it is. Episode whatever. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's nine, isn't it? Nine? Are you yeah, sure? It's either eight or nine. Could be eight. <sighs> I'm gonna have to pull this up. You need to change those names. Hey, just give them a title. Wh- when's the last time you checked this? They're all changed. Are they? Uh, I changed them a couple of days ago. Well, they changed <laughs> on Spotify. Um, so we we thought we better change the names of the podcast because they were just up as like episode one, episode two, episode three, um, and it's hard if you're looking for an episode on a specific topic. It's a bit difficult to find, uh, so we changed, we renamed them. But <laughs> if you check the names, they're so they're shit. Like it's like episode one intro, episode two race organizers, episode three race champion. I think I called it. Um, so I we can we can change the names again. Anybody has any suggestions for uh, names? Had us up. Right. We might discuss them on the next intro. Uh, do, 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 do. what that the episode number? Right. Um, I think it's eight. Eight. Go with eight. So here we have it. Episode eight. Enjoy. Enjoy. Cut that out. That sounded really seedy or something, didn't it? <laughs> uh, that's you're listening to the Coast to 250k podcast with me, Blaine O'Donnell. And me, Aidan Doherty. And we're going to be taking on the mammoth challenge that is the race. This will be a 10-month documentation covering all the highs and lows that come with preparing for an ultra-endurance event. It's us. Right. Right, so, episode 8. Yep. 
Um, we're here today to talk about nutrition, primarily. Um, we've brought on Dr. Kevin Logue, who um, is has done his PhD in dietetics. Um, so you can introduce yourself better than I can. So if you want to go ahead, Kevin. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks for having me along. Um, uh, as Aidan says there, I'm, my name's Dr. Kevin Logue. I'm based uh, at the Nutrition Innovation Center for Food and Health uh, up in the Coleraine campus of Ulster University. Um, I work as a lecturer in dietetics. I uh, have done for the past three years. So my background really is in clinical nutrition. Um, finished my PhD in 2016. So graduated in 2016, having started it in 2012. And that was based around low calorie sweeteners. So I developed a, a novel analytical method for measuring five commonly used low calorie sweeteners in, in urine. And what I want to do now is really take that forward and, and try and investigate in a more comprehensive way um, the potential health impacts of using low calorie sweeteners in the, in the, in the free living population. Um, in terms of the job, um, I've got teaching responsibilities and research responsibilities as well as facilitating clinical placements out, out in the um, health setting in, in Northern Ireland. Um, so quite busy, uh, really enjoyable. So it uh, keeps me going anyway, so it does. Mm. So your specialty is sweeteners, or is that? Yeah. Um. So when you do a PhD, you really narrow down what right. you're looking at, no matter what the, the field of expertise is. So you really get to know a lot about a really specific area. So right. yeah. Um. In terms of the expertise that I developed as part of my PhD, it was really around low calorie sweeteners, how they're regulated, um, the safety of them, health impacts. Also developed expertise in relation to developing analytical methodologies. Um, so going through the process of developing a method that will allow me to detect and measure low calorie sweeteners and biological fluids. So um, and not only that, then you, the PhD is really a training degree. So what you're doing is you're getting training on carrying out research. So mm -hmm. what you're doing is conducting, or what I did was conduct human studies, recruiting people, managing people, collecting samples, analyzing the samples, data analysis in and then hopefully then the outputs are, are publishing your work in and, and right. peer-reviewed peer -reviewed journals. Um, so that's, in terms of research, that's where my primary area of interest is. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of nutrition, now uh, my expertise, of, I'm, a, I'm a, a qualified and registered dietitian. Um, so um, I teach on a range of modules, uh, specifically in the area of clinical nutrition. So whereas... Um, we're trained up on public health and dealing with healthy people. Um, as dietitians, we, we very much focus on trying to help sick people, make sure that they're receiving the, the nutrition that they require yeah. in order to help them get better and, and reduce the chances of them getting sick again, really. Yeah. So we have a couple of areas of interest, really. Um, so clinical nutrition and sweeteners. I'm quite interested in obesity research and diabetes research as well, yeah. in the context of sweeteners. Yeah. And what does, there's a bit of controversy around certain sweeteners and, you know, the whole aspartame and the cancer uh, risk associated with it, or supposed well, cancer risk. What's your opinion on it? In terms of safety, they are, at the proposed levels of use, they're, mm. they're entirely safe to use. Um, sweeteners are food additives, low-calorie sweeteners are food additives, and, and as they are food additives, they need to go through a really stringent safety assessment before they're yeah. actually introduced to the human food chain. So what that involves is really um, exposing animals to various doses of the sweeteners over a long period of periods of time, 
Um, and these would be multi-generational studies, so you could be looking at, you know, the parents, then looking at the offspring, um, and then seeing is there any abnormal effects, you know, uh, on biochemistry, reproduction, you know, growth, and behavioural aspects. Mm. And the purposes of doing the safety assessments is really to try and identify the highest level that has no adverse effect or no bad effect on the most sensitive species of animal. Um, and then once that's identified, what the what the authorities do or what the people do um, who are carrying out the research is they apply safety factors to that highest level that doesn't cause any adverse effect in, in, in the most sensitive species of animal. And they call that the acceptable daily intake. Mm. Um, and then that's the upper level that would be regarded as safe for human consu- consumption over a period of a lifetime on a daily basis. Right. So it's not necessarily... You're not, you don't have the ADA and then fall off a cliff as such. So there's large safety factors there. Yeah. So in a roundabout way, I think I've uh, tried to answer your question to say that they're safe. Yeah. There's no uh, safety concerns in relation to that. You would need to be drinking gallons and gallons and gallons of diet beverages mm-hmm. in order to hit the acceptable daily intake. But even if you were doing that and hitting the acceptable daily intake, yeah. um, it's there's still low level of risk. And in order to consume enough sweetener from a diet beverage for example you probably die of overhydration <laughs> if they drink so much of the, the, yeah. the drink um in terms of health um the health impacts now are, are, there's a bit of a question mark around them um the experimental studies that we that we would bring people in well i haven't I actually done it yet but the experimental studies where people have been brought in and you know you'll have a an intervention group and a control group and and you're you know having controlled conditions um, have shown that sweeteners when replace sugar when they're usually replace sugar can have a beneficial effect in terms of weight and, and blood glucose control the big question mark is is around the studies that have been conducted in large scale populations so maybe tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people and we are collecting information in relation to sweetener intake and then looking for associations over time and some not all the studies have maybe revealed associations between sweetener consumption and um the risk of, of obesity um, and diabetes and maybe all our health outcomes but the gold standard evidence would tell us that the sweeteners are benef- beneficial so they mm. are what's the difference between diet beverages and zero bre- beverages you know like a, a, a coke diet coke or a coke uh, Mar- marketing marketing is that <laughs> it so diet coke was traditionally um, aimed at women so you would remember the Diet Coke where you the, was it the Wonder Cleaner taking his top off and all the rest of it well some men might be on that as well <laughs> but uh, it was marketed towards women whereas Coke Zero um, is more you, know, you can look at the packaging it's black it's got there's black in it and it's yeah. market, marketed mm. to more towards men but essentially it's there's no difference in terms of that yes. so you get the zero sugar uh, totally replaced by low calorie sweeteners and therefore they should be beneficial compared to drinking a full sugar Coke mm. yeah. And so see, just stepping back there, you were saying about the animal studies. Do they ever do human trials and that, or do they just extrapolate from animal studies up to to get the, the so recommended daily intake? So that's, that's a good question. You know, if you're if you're introducing a, a compound or you know a, a potential food additive to the human food chain, they they carry out the research initially in humans is going to be uh, potentially unsafe. You know, I'm sure not, not all food additives will be introduced if they're not shown to be safe at the proposed levels of use. So you have to conduct these animal studies. Um, you have to conduct the studies in animals. They mm. see, you know, maybe in a, in a complex organism, how, how they're going to interact with the, the compound and so on and see are, are there any adverse effects. 
and then you do extrapolate the findings somewhat but as i said before the safety factors applied are designed to account for interspecies variation as well as intraspecies so between humans and animals as well as within humans so you're going to have an, uh, individual variation in certain population groups yep. and so on so the safety factors are designed to account for that you know you know, we can't always apply evidence that's obtained from animal studies and extrapolate it and mm. apply it to humans just straight off the bat there needs to be some sort of accounting uh, and qualification of the evidence in, t in terms of interpreting it um, so the safety factors are put in place to account yeah. for that yeah right, right, right. and is it always mice and rats are they the closest to us I, I haven't actually conducted any animal based research at all you right, know okay. so um, I usually it is but you'll um, from the reports that I've written or, or read sorry um, you, you can have primates you can oh. have uh, dogs um, rabbits and so mm. on but usually mice uh, rodents would be would be used um, probably because they're easy to manage and, and right. so on you know and, and there's good there's good models there for applying the research mm. you would imagine too if they were using dogs and primates that look like uh, all those animal rights activist groups would be a lot more keen to spark up some well this is some protests. Um, you can see you can see you know you can see their point really like you know mm -hmm. um it's it's if it's done in the name of science um ethical approval needs to be um obtained it's not ethical to be carrying out research on animals just for the sake of carrying out research there needs to be good reason to carry out the research um and all that is really really closely monitored you know um and controlled um within our research context so in at Ulster university we do uh carry out some animal-based research but it's done uh, and, and for good reason mm. um, and it needs to be well justified and it needs to be demonstrated that this is the, the best way to carry out the research and, and probably the only way that we can get good evidence that will inform future research you know yeah yeah so mm. yeah I don't entirely disagree with the sentiments from uh, animal rights activists to I be honest with you, you I, know, I, wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily uh, be comfortable with doing it but um, if you think that the benefits are going to outweigh the risks or the the downsides as such then it can be justified mm. i feel it's a fairly new phenomenon that day isn't it because they used to do human and animal studies up until recently like um i was reading stephen pinker's book about the progress of humans um and it was like 40s 50s 60s they were still doing some degree of human studies you no know, psychological mm -hmm. studies and stuff like that and they were pretty pretty tough on animals too like mm. um so that's fairly new phenomenon yeah, ethics is really important uh, so just to give you an insight on the um you know my my world in terms of research is that whenever i was doing the phd obviously we have to go through courses in terms of research integrity um, any studies that that, have, that may have any ethical implications that involve collecting information from humans um dealing with animals and so on you require um approval and there's a really stringent process that we need to go through in order to gain that approval so there is so i i think practice has probably changed i'm not i wouldn't be totally aware of the uh, you know you can you, you see it in the documentaries and, so, and mm. so on you know in the way the likes of nazi germany and so yeah, on the things that they would have done with prisoners and maybe even in the mental institutions where these people were written off because they didn't know how else they deal with them and, okay. and, they, and they just tried really extreme ex experiments that sort of stuff in, at least in western society uh, doesn't happen right. or at least it shouldn't happen um right. so for us to be able to actually publish any research we need to demonstrate that we've had ethical approval and mm. that it's been given um the proper and appropriate overview before it's been conducted there's um there's a documentary on netflix called the bilko experiment or something like that bilko experiment 
heard of I it. I didn't or? watch it, but I've just read about it. But that was like fifties or sixties or something too. But it was a psychological uh, logical experiment performed on humans, and they took these two groups and the and they like a J cell, and they let one group be, you know, the the wardens or the guards. I've watched that. Uh, and watched one group that be the prisoners, and yeah. they did like we sample psychological things right. like they can obscured some like yards fist gave them big aviators and huh. you know they give them a bit of a power complex aye, like aye. and sure enough like like yards that are really mistreating aye. the the prisoners you know what i mean aye. um it's crazy aye. i think that was actually one of the last like big scale human experiments no what they did psychological, psychological. I there's loads that we need to find out about psychology mm. and how and human behavior like you know it's just about how you carry out that research and you know you could sit down and say well you've got a research question here we would like to know more about x but how do we go about it and do it in an ethical way that's not going to put anybody in harm's way or maybe have some sort of long-standing impact and even if there is the risk of any adverse effects you know if you're carrying out research for somebody there may be uh, some risk um with, with certain procedures and so on as long as people are fully informed about that yeah uh, in advance and they're happy to consent then then that's 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 we got really fairly technical fairly quickly out of my straight on the sweeteners talk about sweeteners all day but it'll bore your audience they uh, definitely say, yeah. uh, well we chat about uh, the event what are you make a, what Blaine's doing I am still I found out about the event a while back now and uh, I'm still not too sure what they make of it <laughs> I think obviously when you think about the motivations behind it and, the, and uh, it's really admirable what, he, what, what he's trying to do um, I think it's as about as extreme extreme as you you can get in terms of pushing your body um, mm. to the limit. Um, so in one sense, I think it's a bit crazy, uh, but in another sense, in the context of what you're doing, I think fair play to you, like is what I would say. Um, in terms of uh, you know the success of it, I uh. think you know it's all about preparation and making sure you put the the proper pre- preparation on it. Um, I think it'd be an amazing experience if you if you come through it and finish it. It's definitely something that you can. I don't know if it's something that you'll be looking to repeat in a, in a hurry, mm-hmm. like, but it could be something you say you've done and a real achievement, like so. Uh. I think it's it's something that I suppose I'd be like a normal person. I'd be looking at it and going, "Gee, that sounds amazing." But yeah. you know, I'm never doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, eh? I'll sit back and be the armchair athlete here and you know, cheer you on. So, like, you know. yeah. But I know it's. Uh, I hear it's a good initiative, like you know what I mean. Um, and I heard just before when we were chatting, that Blaine's getting married the, the month after, like so. <laughs> it's a good way of getting on the an extreme way of getting on the good neck for it, like so <laughs> for the wedding. Uh, practicing running away, just <laughs> run away. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. You might not be able to run too far after the wedding. Hey, we run up in a wheelchair. Uh, he did actually say if he should we put this in the record, he said if you fail it, you're gonna give it another go, like. Ah. Uh. It's on record now. <laughs> Give it an hour go. Well, hey, look, it's it seems to me from following what you're doing so far, like it's it's you're 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 you know under Aiden's guidance uh, and so on in terms of training, you're 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 putting on the place, you know, uh, you're you're putting on the place preparation to try and bring yourself up to speed. Um, so it seems that you're you're putting all you're doing all the right things to try and to try and get the and the position that'll maximize your chances of finishing it. Like, um. I, I don't see why you can't do it like you know but I think I saw your Facebook post uh, you were talking about your diet and you've acknowledged the <laughs> fact that your diet might not necessarily be perfect uh, uh, from a nutrition perspective um, and I suppose this will be relevant to anybody training both at a, a casual level as well as a competitive level it goes hand in hand you know huh. um, so I think it's really important to find something that works for you and is, that you can be compliant with 
Um, and I suppose if you can put that in place, then, then the two going hand in hand will maximise your chances for, for success. Uh, so. I think it's it's more a, a discipline thing for me. Like I've I've had you know fortnight spells where stuck to the diet that Aidan's given me and you know it's worked really well I've seen the advantages my performance has been better my, my whole attitude has been better but then you want to work and there's a custard slice sitting there we're all exposed to it like, you know, uh, it's the environment we love in today really and it, it's not all about the environment um, but at the same time it's not all about the individual you know so you can be as determined as you want to be um, you could be in your exercise. You're doing your exercises. You know you're being encouraged to go along and and, and carry out the physical activity, and then you come off a back it. Everybody's the same. You're feeling motivated. You're feeling up for it, and, and that'll uh, help you make healthier choices. But then you go into certain situations, and it could be an individual to anybody. It could be the it could be going on to your work, hmm. where there's somebody in your office who just likes bringing on a bun, <laughs> who loves buns, and then buys a pile of them because it makes them feel better because everybody else is eating them as well. <laughs> um, it could be. Catching up your mitts day for a fo- game of uh, watching a football or whatever, like it could be linked with having a few beer. Huh. There's all these wee triggers. Uh, if you think in your in your personal environment, and we're constantly exposed to them, it's just about finding ways of dealing with it. Huh. I think and and maintaining it. But nobody has the perfect diet. That's the huh. thing, and nobody should aim to have the perfect diet. Where or even I suppose I should start off by saying there's no such thing as a good food and no such thing as a bad food. I think straight away what you're doing, you're, what you're doing there is introducing negative connotations with mm. the likes of the cream fingers and whatnot. Um, and that's not right. You know, they, in my opinion, different people will will have different opinions. In my opinion, those types of foods we need to enjoy our food. Like. Mm. So if you enjoy having a bun, it's about doing it in a way that's going to be sustainable and not impact upon your performance. You know, but if you're having a bun every day or a couple of buns every day then that's whenever you're going to see issues mm. appearing over time like you know so I wouldn't necessarily say avoid it mm. um, but just moderation. Try. moderation easier said than done again <laughs> yeah, as well it's something I always say to your clients just try not to think uh, about goods or foods as good and bad or clean uh, and dirty as it's yeah. said now like, you know just it, it only really becomes a problem in the context of a calorie surplus when you start to become obese and that like. I think that's really important too mm. um, categorising things as good and bad is, is not the way to go um, mm. as I say it just introduces the potential for having a negative relationship with, with your food and that's, yeah. that's not, mm. not necessarily a good thing that's a nice segue and they um, they talk about the fundamentals of nutrition you know not specifically sport what are the basics that people need to consider when approaching their nutrition for health and well-being what's this up um, the, the million dollar question <laughs> you know, everybody's you know I, I want to improve my diet and um, I want to I want to get the uh, the width that it was at when I was nineteen or twenty and so mm-hmm. on and I think in terms of nutrition and diet, uh, what, what, what how how could I start answering this question because it is a difficult question to answer. First of all, I suppose I could talk about it in the context of my practice and 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 the, and the way that I would be trained as a dietitian is that it's really important uh, that the the way that you um. Uh, eat and your dietary behaviors is individual to you and and fits in with your beliefs what you can afford and you know within your skill set and what your knowledge is and anybody providing dietary advice should really take into account what the overall sort of circumstances of the individual is there's no point in there's no one size fits all is what i'm saying mm. it's individual to you um but if you want to break it down under the fundamentals of nu- nutrition as such it's um nutrition um it's really about providing our body with 
um, the appropriate amount of macronutrients and the nutrients that we require in large amounts and micronutrients the nutrients that we require in small amounts in order for us to stay healthy um, stave off the onset of any uh, conditions uh, <clears throat> and uh, uh, do you want to say exactly what just in case anybody's not <coughs> sure what micro and micronutrients are so micronutrients when we talk about micronutrients <coughs> what we talk about there is uh, your carbohydrates protein fats uh, they are consumed in large amounts. Alcohol would also be a macronutrient as well. Uh, they would be consumed in relatively large amounts from the diet. Uh, micronutrients then would be your vitamins and minerals. So everybody's heard about you know the vitamins A, B, C, D and E and so on. Um, and then your minerals then, such as your iron, selenium, you know, those types of nutrients that we need in small amounts, but they really have vital jobs within the body uh, in order for the body to function properly. So... The fundamentals and, the, and what I would say, well, the fundamental principle is they try and ensure that your body is receiving enough of those nutrients in order for it to op, uh, function in an optimal way. Um, what I think has tended to happen over the past 30, 40 years, given the rise in obesity, is that um, we've become very much focused on certain aspects of the diet um, and really narrowing it down to specific nutrients and almost demonizing certain nutrients. Um, and most recently, for example, you have sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, or free sugars um, so the, the types of sugars that are added to products and the, the health impacts that, that there might be there in relation to uh, consumption, over cons- consumption of that I don't necessarily agree with, with that approach of identifying specific nutrients because we don't eat nutrients we eat foods and foods mm-hmm. contain a range of nutrients you know so I think it's about having the right balance um, and it, it's very cliched I don't know maybe people will be sitting listening and saying we hear this before, and, and that's mm. a general advice, but it, it, it is the advice there. We need to provide our body with the, the ba- right balance of nutrients that's going to help us maintain our health. Uh, I always find, too, if somebody plants a flag in one thing in nutrition, I always approach it with a bit of skepticism. Well, if somebody goes, this is the food that you don't want to be eating, I always think, you yeah. know, it's not that simple. You, know, you can't be just that one size fits all for everybody. Like you know. So suppose just um, they, they tie out the, what the official guidance is. I'm sure a lot of people will be aware. I mean, a lot of people aren't aware of it as the Eat Well Guide. And that's the way that the government have um, you know, helped us depict what a balanced diet might look like. And they've broken it down into certain food groups. So you have your starchy foods, which will be a, a, a high source of carbohydrates. But it's really a... a the right types of starchy foods are really important source of fiber and, and micronutrients such as you know your b vitamins and so on and then your protein foods um fruits and vegetables how could i forget those um and then your oils and, and so on so the, the way the government have, have sort of tried to um depict that they help people um and they guide people not necessarily they dictate the people um, is they try and give them ideas of the types of foods that are required in order to ensure that there's a balance here and that over time that um, you know they're receiving the nutrients or they're consuming the nutrients that they require, um, and I suppose that's I don't know even know if that that answer your question. Right. Um, <laughs> in so terms of the fundamentals, in terms right. of health, um, I think it's important as well to highlight the fact that um, at different stages of life, um, nutritional requirements differ as well. So, um, at early in life, even preconception, it's re- nutrition is really important to ensure that you know. Uh, we maximize your chances of, of actually conceiving and so on. That uh, nutrition is important there. The likes of alcohol can impair that. Mm. The likes of alcohol has probably caused a lot of concessions <laughs> as well. But, but over time, if you have an unhealthy diet, um, you know, alcohol can impair it. You know, uh, those are the types of things that your weight status can impair that. So even before you're born, 
you know, the nutrition of your parents has probably had an influence on how you've developed. They reckon now that even when you're in the in the womb, um, you know, uh, that the type of nutrition that, that you receive when you're developing as a fetus um, can have a, may have long-term impacts in relation to your health. So at different stages of life, uh, I'll not bore you with, with each stage, but at different stages, you think about the, what the focus is or what your body's trying to do. So mm. it's really in early in life, the focus is on growth. So energy requirements are really per kilogram of body weight's really high, a lot, lot higher than what it would be for an adult. Protein requirements, you know, the likes of your minerals, calcium and so on would be really important for laying down bone. So, and that, you know, what is healthy or what is recommended for a child, a toddler is not going to be the same as what's recommended yeah. for an adult and so on. So it's important to be aware that you can't really lift it and apply it, um, you know, to everybody in terms of what, what, what would be recommended, even for yourself. Um, so, I think that's an important point to highlight as well. Mm. The the light the stage of life that you're at is uh, will determine you know to a certain degree what your nutritional requirements are. Yeah, and then of course if you're involved in any sort of sport, you have to take, make that consideration then too. I suppose that's probably why children can eat so much crap and get away with it for mm. one of the reasons anyway. Well, pretty much, and mm. I, I think that's where um, as parents, where it's really important to try and instill good habits. Mm. You know, it's not always possible. You know, um, there's a lot of pressures on parents as well. Um, you want the you want what you want what's best for your child. Obviously, everybody does. Um, and you know, it can it can get to a stage where maybe you're you're trying to I suppose feed your child in the same way that you're eating. So you're trying to increase your fiber intake, eating lots of fruit and veg, yeah. and then that can have a detrimental effect on the child's growth because fruit and veg are relatively low right. in energy. Um, and if that's satiating, so it's making you fuller for longer then that's going to impact upon their consumption of all our foods that are providing energy and that, and that can actually have a negative impact. So you can have too much of a good thing at certain, yeah, certain yeah. aspects. Um, so, but again, just to tie it back to the social pressures as well, the social pressures are important. Um, seeing what all our parents are doing, your child coming on and saying such and such, had so, uh, you know, had, had this in their lunch, you know, can I have mm. this? And you don't necessarily agree with and uh, it's, it's, it's pressure, so it is, it's, it's high pressure and it, it can be stressful for parents to try and shoot, make the right choices for the children. Yeah. You know. yeah, it's a lot harder than I think people give credit for like. All right, so basically micronutrient intake and what's your view on calories overall? What's well should you be highly concerned or portion control calories? I think yeah, I think uh, in, in the context of weight and people a lot of us are trying to achieve a, a body weight that we would regard as healthy, we're trying to look a certain way. Um, and so on um, and what it break, fundamentally uh, breaks down to is the amount of energy that we're consuming and the amount of energy that we're expending um, so calories are key basically like, you know, and there's different people believe that the macronutrient composition um, of the diet or eating certain combinations of macronutrients you know, can have an impact and, and maybe it does uh, but fundamentally your body cannot create energy it cannot create fat tissue out of nothing really yeah, so yeah. it is down to the calories if everything's getting used it can i store anything basically well pretty much yeah um there are certain conditions in which you know you can't apply that day you know the likes of maybe the thyroid conditions hypothyroidism mm. where maybe the basal metabolic rate the, the you know the, the amount of energy required for the body to um carry out basic functions decreases so somebody eating what would be regarded as a normal diet with these types of people would find it difficulty manager weight and that's a symptom of a condition but for the vast majority of the population it boils down to calories on the uh, and how it equals calories out like you know yeah. so it's actually um just 
I would see a few clients, you know, with thyroid conditions. Is there any, what is the nutrient interventions, nutrient interventions that you should use? Um, so I'm aware there's people close to me as well. She'll not mind me saying as well. My wife has a, a thyroid, hypothyroidism, and it's yeah. a thyroid replacement therapy that she would undergo. And um, I would, ha- it's not my area, area, but it's, it's, I, I look at it and I go, thinking the way you're thinking it, uh, to be honest with you, is there anything, a specific diet that you could provide mm-hmm. uh, that could help provide, uh, you know, uh, people like uh, Melissa with, with the nutrition that she requires in order to help her ma- manage her weight or the condition. Um, the thyroid, the, the main nutrient that's important with thyroid, iodine. Um, and another nutrient that's really important is selenium. Um, so I suppose there's a question in my head and I haven't looked into it in any great detail, is that you need selenium in order to, uh, you know, uh, make the thyroid hormone, the active version of the thyroid hormone. And the, I mind reading about it or I mind hearing about it during my undergraduate degree about 10 years ago. One of the lectures was saying, I think it was around the EU, whenever the grains that were purchased before we had um, joined the EU or maybe back in the 60s, 70s, we used to get our grains from Canada. And selenium basically is in the soil. So if it's a selenium-rich soil, the grains that you would get the selenium, you know, you would get your selenium from grains that are yeah. grown in selenium-rich soil. Yeah. But I think now the source of the grains that we would get within Europe um, is different. I think it's maybe I'm, I'm assuming that they're bought from within Europe, whereas the selenium content of the soil is not as high. Yeah. So you reckon now that maybe you know people could be having a subclinical, so it's not necessarily a deficiency, but could be have low levels of selenium in the diet, and this might impact. And I can remember impact upon maybe th- you know the likes of maybe managing your thyroid condition. Mm. And I can remember saying to Melissa, you know, why don't you try, like, Brazil nuts are a really rich source of selenium. So you need a couple of those, two or three of those a day uh, in order to get your get the amount of selenium that you require. And uh, mine saying to her, just eat a couple of Brazil nuts and see how you get on and all yeah. the rest of it. Like, but that was an N equals one. You can't really draw uh, yeah. any firm conclusions <laughs> yeah, yeah. from that. Um, and mine are saying, I, you know, she noticed the difference, but that could be down to uh, placebo effect. Yeah, You'll not know yeah, what yeah. until you carry out the research. And I'm not sure if the research has been done. But in terms of managing the condition, I think... Um, it's trying to it's a clinical management issue mm. there in terms of that so um, if it's thyroid replacement therapy um, then it's a case of making sure you liaise closely with your medical professionals your GP get your bloods checked regularly um, if the blood levels of your um, th- uh, the thyroid hormone and all are not, aren't optimal then it's about trying to manage that in terms of diet um, it's about then trying to just trying to have a, a balanced diet healthy eating advice um, and trying to ensure that the energy in equals energy out basically like um not always it's it's quite difficult in that type of condition like yeah but i'm not aware of any specific dietary interventions dietary protocol that you could put in place that's going to solve maybe that that particular problem yeah yeah i was just for my own uh, (laughs) i wasn't on the on the thing at all just i had a i had it was a long time ago now like but i had a client who had um i think thyroid problem and i think it's a clinical management really important so if it's really important to signpost people on the, on the, uh, you know, their GP or the, mm. you know, if, if they're not managing their condition properly and then really trying to embed, a, you know, healthy eating. We're all, we all, you know, the healthy eating principle, the general healthy eating guidelines is what we should all aim towards with slight modifications depending on what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. Mm. Whether it's weight loss or whether it's weight gain or whether it's certain managing certain conditions or maybe, you know, such as diabetes, for example. So it's just trying to aim for that general uh, healthy eating uh, pattern and then uh, modifying it 
um, as appropriate. One of the questions we had was behavior. Are you familiar with how behavior and diet and nutrition are linked, I suppose? Aye, aye. Well, um, there's research that we would conduct up at the uh, up at the university and there's, there's quite a lot of research has been done looking at different aspects aspects of behaviour. Now I haven't been directly involved in the research but I'm aware of it. The likes of the health halo effect has been um, uh, investigated as part of research it c- conducted in our department. So we feel the likes of if someone's marketed as a healthier alternative. Yeah. yeah. Nutritionally it might not necessarily be that different. They you know, just a regular variety. Um, mm. so uh, colleagues of mine in the past have looked at, you know, the portion sizes that have been chosen on right those products that are marketed as healthier alternatives and, and what was found was that people tend to eat more of them <laughs> so the overall what they tend to do is that they're choosing a healthier option and because they're choosing a healthier option they're eating more of that particular product yeah. um, and then that ends up they're consuming more energy than what they would if they were eating the regular variety yeah. um, and that's termed a health halo effect so that's one example of the behavioural aspect Um Another example as well in terms of behaviours, supposed to take it back to the sweeteners, I'm interested in how if the experimental studies have uh, demonstrated that sweeteners per se, so the sweeteners themselves and the body don't cause, don't look like they cause any adverse effects, is it the way that we're using them? So are we going and choosing a diet beverage and then eating a bar of chocolate that we wouldn't have eaten afterwards uh, yeah. and then that's overcompensating? Mm-hmm. Is that possible or is that happening? So what I have done now is uh, set up a couple of studies that, we ru- that we've run through master's projects and we're looking at trying to categorize people as per sweetener consumption and looking at you know food related cognition so we're interested in relative food preferences so do people who consume sweeteners prefer sweet taste over savory taste which might translate into the consumption of you know really sweet foods which tend to be higher in calories and this might impact upon weight um, what else have we looked at then? Sweet taste detection. So we've looked at um, running experiments looking at sweet taste detection and recognition thresholds. So do people who consume low-calorie sweeteners um, have a higher or lower threshold for sweet taste? So if it's a higher threshold, do they need to consume more sweetness in order to get the satisfaction from it? Yeah. And then that can result in overconsumption of calories. And then the other thing that we're interested in as well is the objective measure. So these people, um, are they more... Um, you know, have them uh, more, um, what do you call it, visually biased towards certain foods that might be higher in calories. So we've used um, really cool uh, technology, eye tracking technology up at the university to carry out desk-based experiments. They, um, you know, look at to see where people are looking in terms of when they're exposed, they uh, present it with images of foods that are regarded as maybe low in energy versus high in energy high sweetness versus low sweetness and so on. So those aspects of behaviour, we're trying to, well, I'm personally trying to investigate in relation to low-calorie sweetener consumption. Um, but in, gen- in general, in terms of behaviour, um, that's, we're free-loving individuals, or at least we, we, f- we think that we are. We feel that we can make choices. In my opinion, there's a good chance that we're maybe slaves to marketing and advertising <laughs> when we maybe we're making choices without even knowing it. Um, but... Again, um, I wouldn't have the answer to that one. But um, behavior, um, Blaine talked about it earlier on. He comes under the office, you know, that's a trigger. Yeah. Uh, that triggers a certain behavior, which eats bones. Um, and that makes it difficult for him to adhere to his dietary regimen. Um, you know, 
like that could happen to anybody. It could be there's any, any sorts of triggers that might impact upon uh, our behavior around food. We all eat. We've been eating since we were no height. Um, we need to eat to stay healthy and we all have our opinions about diet and nutrition and that impacts upon our behavior around diet and so on. So it's something that we do every day. It's something that we all have an opinion on and something that we do out of habit as well. So I think... Um, again, I'm not sure if I've answered your question around <laughs> behaviour. I think it's a really, really complex uh, area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose they bring it back to the individual approach. If people, if, if any of your listeners are trying to, you know, achieve something and that's diet related, if it's trying to get to a certain weight, they're trying to get in the shape, um, you know, or trying to maybe enhance performance. It's really about reflecting on your own behaviour. You mm. know, how what is your relationship with food? Um, and when we think about relationship with food, we you know there's different sort of checkpoints if you like. There's your, um, you know the the foods that you would shop for. So when you're in the supermarket, you know, are you in a rush? Um, are you hungry? Um, this can impact upon your food choice at that stage. You know, if you're in a rush, you'll not be able to look at the the food labels just as comprehensively as as you would if you were taking your time. Had you planned ahead? Did you make a plan for your meals beforehand coming out? Or are you doing it ad hoc? Are you just luffling them what you can? Yeah. And brand loyalty is well known, you know, so you might just pick the, the foods that you're, that you're used to picking. Then, when you buy the foods in, you're bringing it back home. Um, you're preparing the food then, so the food preparation, so your behavior around food prep. Um, so what sort of cooking methods are you using? Are you frying your food? Are you using oil? What type of oil are you using? How much of the oil are you using? Are you adding salt to flavor it? Are you adding other flavorings? Are you tasting the food while you're eating it? You know, that's going to increase the more the, the type of food that you consume. Um, and then that's in terms of the food preparation. So the preparation of the food is really important and your behavior around that's important as well. And then we're sitting at the table at the end. So once the food gets there, table, how much of the food are we putting out for ourselves? You know, if you're mm-hmm. like myself, totally, I'm a gulping. You know, I'll eat anything. <laughs> I was brought up in the brandy well, told that the, um, you know, eat all your dinner, fin- finish it all. Uh, uh, you know, you should be lucky that you're getting the food. And we don't need to finish our food. Like, you know, we ever hear the saying, eat until you're 80% full. Yeah. It, there's a lot, it goes a long way, but I, I've the, personally developed a habit of just eating anything, everything that's put in a plate. Mm. So if I put out a, a large portion, it's going to get out, yeah, you know, yeah, whether yeah. I'm full up or not. Um, you see things even like the, the size of the plate can determine, you know, aye, the, I've seen things on Facebook where it's exact same yep. portion of food, but on two different size plates and, mm, and one looks like a huge portion, the other looks... I mean, re- uh, really is he? Uh, um, so subconsciously, so you can you know, think about your behaviours and from a subconscious perspective and, and what you're consciously choosing as well and and that type of those type of really really it's a cool sort of approach, isn't it? Like you know, hmm. so if you're using a smaller plate, then that's automatically going to reduce the amount of food that you eat and the psychological impact of finishing your. So for somebody like me, if I see a clean plate, I've ate my dinner. That's yeah. it. It's it. But if I use a smaller plate, I'm going to still clean my plate, but. Yeah. It's going to be psychologically. I'm still ticking that box, so that can impact. So maybe I'm going to take that forward for myself, <laughs> like afterwards. But um, an interesting point on related to that as well is that um, I think there's been some research look looking at the actual color of your plate as well might right. have an impact oh, on the amount geez. of food. So even they reckon even maybe the likes of red might you know if it's this intrinsic or innate you know going way back to whenever we were out in the 
Savannah, you know, you had to eat quickly. And if you see red, then that's maybe a sign of danger. So you're eating and, and that might impact upon the amount of food that you eat. Crazy. So, um, but red place just sounds weird, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure if how applicable that would be. Do you have to think about hoods in my house? Oh, there you go. Sorry, that's <laughs> I'm being judgmental there. <laughs> red <laughs> brigade. Uh, so I, no, that's, that's, that's a really valid point. Yeah. So it's about, just to bring it back to the, individualized approach so it's about if you're trying to address certain aspects of your dietary behavior try and identify what your own behavior is so something that works for your best mate so somebody i swear doing this year has worked for me and they look great and all the rest of it and then you start trying to copy that and it doesn't work you're feeling down then you start to blame yourself and then you get the negative psychology around it then so trying to find something that works for you is going to fit in your life and your lifestyle is what's really key i would say might start eating off a bun litter or something, <laughs> try and get me to, to eat more. I, I, I struggle to eat. Like, oh, really? Yeah. I uh, just, well, mine we're down the marathon. Like, well, it was like, hey. it was like, you know, when you're waiting, you're trying to get Joanne to eat dinner. <laughs> Jesus, he was trying to get food on them, you know, the morning uh, of the marathon, and it was like, you were dry heaving everything. It's uh, like, you know, oh, really? trying to put it on. And it was, was only it? a wee pot of porridge. I think it was about the nerves as well. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, the nerves could have a big impact. I suppose uh, there's certain things that you can, you know, do. Um, whenever in the clinical setting, there's a lot of our patients. This is going to maybe sound weird to some people, but there's a lot of patients that, you know, we're not given. It wouldn't necessarily fit with healthy eating advice. So for somebody, if you're sick, um, you know, certainly whenever I'm sick, uh, the first thing that goes your appetite. Really, mm. you don't need to eat a while lot. But for people who are chronically sick. The appetite goes. Um, they're not getting those nutrients that they require, and their body starts. It needs it from somewhere. So, the energy, for example, it'll start. It'll turn on the lean tissue, so your your muscle mass and so on, in order to try and get the energy and the and the other types of nutrients that you require to stay healthy. But over time, you know, this is a bad thing because your body then starts to almost break down, and that increases the risk health ways. But I suppose, Blaine, um, in from your perspective, whenever you're um, training and so on. Um, there's certain things that we could do in terms of your dietary pattern so if, if you find it difficult to eat large I don't know what the reason is is it mm. large you find it difficult to eat large amounts or is uh. it um, you know, if, that, if that is the case it's just trying to address that maybe having small frequent meals uh. um, and trying to do it that way maybe if it really is an issue um, and what we would do in the clinical setting is fortify foods so you have maybe you know everyday foods so somebody likes mashed potato fortifying that with cheese um, that's bringing protein and energy to, right. to the mash mm. and it really improves the flavour so if you don't need ah. to be putting on with <laughs> I tried it whenever I was studying hey, it is amazing yeah. you know so cheddar cheese spread it on the, uh, your mash it's, just, ah. it's beautiful but you know that type of stuff can mm. increase the energy density ah. of the diet I wouldn't necessarily recommend that I don't think for your healthy person what I would recommend is maybe trying to um, you know look at what you're doing um, and, and look at what the reasons are for maybe uh, trying to address why you find it difficult to eat enough mm. this risk is going to be intense you know it's going to put a big strain on your on your body uh, in terms of energy mm. that requirement so I think it's really important that, that, that that's something that you would maybe try and look at and, 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 and get your head around mm. um, even for his training it's going to need a lot of energy just to because uh, it gets pretty intense coming in a few weeks time uh. it's ramped up pretty high like you know uh, that's a thing in terms of your training um you know and it applies to it applies to everybody like if you're uh, a casual um uh, trainer or casual if you're on the casual exercise and so on if you just work out 
uh, just for the enjoyment of it and so on. Uh, your body obviously requires a fuel, so it'll turn to somewhere to get it. And you've got this, the main sources of fuel in the body are your carbohydrates and your and your um, fat. Um, so the body holds carbohydrates, has a limited store of carbohydrates in the form of glycogen that, that's held within your muscles and liver. But that's liberated quite uh, quickly whenever you're uh, running for long periods of time. So it's really important to try and replenish those. Mm. So even after a after an exercise session, having a carbohydrate source to try and replenish the glycogen, that can uh, make you more fit then for the next session that you're going to go on, reduce the risk of uh, injury, um, and help you maintain your performance. Um, because if the next session, session comes along and you haven't uh, addressed or tried to replenish the glycogen, your body's going to transition under that period where it's going to start to turn to alternative sources very quickly. Yeah. And that's not necessarily going to be a, a good way of trying to get on their way of uh, working. How quickly can you replenish those? It's a good question. Uh, so replen- replenishing your glycogen stores, um, I suppose it can happen fairly uh, rapidly um, after an exercise session. But if it's going to be a prolonged session yeah. of exercise, then you're obviously trying to make sure that your uh, glycogen stores do not become depleted during right. the during the exercise. And then the main barriers, the how quickly your body can replenish glycogen stores, really, I would suggest, would be determined by how quickly you can digest the food that you're consuming. Right. So your, and the timing of that is important as well. So um, so if you're consuming the carbohydrates, um, what form are the carbohydrates being consumed in? What are the types of carbohydrates? Are they complex? Are they simple carbohydrates? All this will impact upon the, the rate of digestion and absorption. And then once uh, it is absorbed, then your body then can utilize them as it, as it needs them. But that's, I suppose, some of the questions that I saw coming through from your listeners was, was around, you know, some of this, you know, the GI symptoms that you might get mm-hmm. uh, in relation to try and replenish those. Um, so I think it's really important to put on a uh, experiment as part of your preparation for the, the race. Trial and error, everybody's individual um, and and seeing what works for you in terms of the products that you would use, the timing, the quantity, and in what form uh, mm. that they're consumed in. Would it be possible to, that, like this event's 24 hours, would it be possible to get through the full 24 hours, just topping up your glycogen stores the full way, or come the end, are you going to be relying on fat and muscle for energy? Um, so, again, so that's, that's, that's quite a specific question, and maybe... I would have to qualify anything I say because it's possibly outside my scope of expertise, but I can sort of rationalize it based on what I do understand is that your body, your body's not usually not solely using carbohydrate and not solely using fat mm. and so on. All right. So it'll be using a mixture of both. And then te- de- and depending on the zone that you're exercising and that'll, you know, determine on the proportion. So it'll, your body's in a constant state of flux. So depending on the, I suppose it depends on the, where the, you know, the stage of the race and so on. So I think from what I have read up um, in terms of the literature and, uh, and the texts that are out there, it's really important they try and prevent that depletion. Mm-hmm. What you're trying to do is maximize the amount of glycogen that your body stores, first of all. And I suppose that's where your carb loading uh, protocol will come in then. Um, and then after that, then having, having someone in place that will prevent the depletion because if you let it get to that stage in terms of uh, fuel depletion then you might you might be shortening you know 
where does your body have to turn to those alternative sources so you want to push it for as far back as possible yeah, yeah. a 24-hour risk come on like I, I don't know if there's a lot of evidence yeah, yeah. in terms of guidance it's putting your body on this it's under serious stress like so i think it's really about preventing is what i would say yeah. so having that protocol in place um having a uh, you know a continual supply of uh, a regular supply of fuel um primarily in the form of carbohydrates i would say um but not consuming too many too soon because then that's going to cause GA symptoms, it's going to cause discomfort, it's going to impact upon your performance. And that's where your practice and your preparation comes on the on the on the case. So I think I suppose again to answer your question, um I feel like I beat about the bush possibly a wee bit, but the answer to your question is that your body is likely to be using uh, lean muscle, mm. um uh, lean sources or protein and fat uh in order to uh liberate liberate um its fuel or uh, energy um throughout the race and the longer that you can go without it you know going to a point where you know it has it has become yeah. a challenge and impairing your performance then that that's that the better i would say mm-hmm. you know so it's about so, managing it yeah so it could be just inevitable that maybe he can i keep up with replenishing those glycogen mm-hmm. stores and eventually he's going to go get a ball i can start mm-hmm. breaking down I, 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 this is it. Um, this is just your first race that you've done, 24 hour race. It's, it's really a case of, uh, this is an experiment, really, yeah. isn't it? You know, yeah. I think you can try and mitigate it. You can educate yourself as much as possible around the, what the evidence says, what's good practice. There, there are people out there, you know, the people that are doing it on a regular basis um, will have protocols that they have figured out themselves that, that it should qualify again, work for them, might yeah. not necessarily work for you. And it's really important that you, as part of your training regime now you start to focus on your nutrition hydration protocols and um you know your uh, uh and all our forms of nu- uh, nutrition and so on they ensure and they try and minimize the chance of what aiden says there you know that catastrophic you know huh. uh, circumstance where you, you you just can't go on you see it happening in, in marathons and so mm. on and seasoned professionals so um so it can happen and that depends on a wide range of factors, environmental yeah. factors, but a really big influence is how you prepare for the race as well mm-hmm. and look after yourself, really. And what I'm just thinking, say worst case scenario, this happens, you know, you hit the wall, you can't go on. What What's your best option there? You know, do you, do you stop, refuel, try and, try and rest, take 20 minutes or something, or do you refuel and keep going at a slower pace or... Um, is there an option is there a preferred option there or what I would suggest that you do is speak to as many people as you can and have taken part in these races <laughs> and pack our brains because they're the people that are going to be the experts on it hmm. um, in terms of nutrition I I think um, they're probably it depends on the severity of the episode really so if it is a case of you really, you really have hit the wall then it could be a case that you know your body could go on to some form of shutdown if you like where even the digestive process may be impaired so even if you do consume the nutrition it may not utilize the nutrients just as well you know so it's a case of trying to prevent that situation happening so i think having the and this is where we we've talked about it before uh, coming on air really like it's a psychology aspect and you know you're going to have apprehension before you start the race um, it's about maybe really being focused and really you have prepared as best you can and having that belief that you're going to finish a race mm. and not necessarily focus on what might happen i'm not a psychologist but that's the way i would sort of try and approach it in terms of nutrition really get embedded now within your your uh, training 
um, and look at different products. You know, what can you tolerate? How much of them can you tolerate? Um, and, and the timing of, of when you're going to consume the products and so on. And trying to embed that within your training so that then you have your protocols in place that you're just going to, it's going to come second nature to you mm. within, your, within the race itself. We kind of went from behavior and the endurance events away? there. Do you want to go back to behavior or not? Or do you um, no, I think no, you it's... went over a good bit of it there. Yeah. Right? See, in terms of the fundamentals of diet when approaching endurance events, do you think, have you said mostly what you were thinking there? Um, <coughs> or is there anything you could add for? Well, there's, there's a couple other things um, that are really important. Um, energy is obviously really, really important. I think in terms of endurance events, now the training, um, the event itself is going to be severe enough, but in terms of the training, that's going to be um, you know, an undertaking in itself. You're going to be uh, taking part and you already have taken part in uh, endurance events what that tends to do is you know this long-term training and intensive training puts a stress on the body may increase the requirements of certain micronutrients we know it definitely increases the requirements of macronutrients you know the likes of your energy and you know carbohydrate consumption and, and protein as well is important as well um but micronutrients as well is ensuring and making sure you have enough uh, micronutrient intake um, and for the general population, what we would recommend is at least uh, five portions of fruit and veg per day. For, but for those endurance athletes, um, of which you are now, uh, really, is uh, your requirements may, may increase. You're putting your body mm. under stress. Um, I'm sure I've read somewhere that the, you know, endurance athletes are really uh, maybe at higher risk of developing the likes of, you know, or maybe you know, suffering from viruses such as colds and flus mm. and so mm. on. So it's important that you have an adequate... So pre-race, it's important that you have adequate, you know, nutrition in terms of your macro and micronutrients. Um, so that's a general, the fundamental concept of that. Um, during the race, um, you know, so I'm probably pre-race as well. Um, some of the things that are important, of course, is going to be your energy. We talked a, a wee bit at length there in terms of the, um, you know, providing enough energy and making sure there's enough carbohydrate being provided. Um, but also sodium will be important as well well hydration i should probably start with hydration first of all hydration is really really important obviously um you know we, we can't function without adequate hydration that's where the real potential danger i would imagine um would be i don't want to maybe call it danger uh i really have uh, serious words or not but but you have to look at it in that way that it's potentially um a situation that could become that could become quite severe if you if, if you don't manage it right but hydration there's a number of different things can happen Obviously, whenever you're exercising over a long period of time, you're becoming dehydrated because you're sweating in order to uh, regulate your body temperature. Um, what can happen there is that uh, uh, you can become hypovolemic. So basically, the volume of your blood can become reduced. That can have impacts upon the, your kidney function. So your kidney function, you need a certain amount of volume and pressure for the kidneys to work properly. And in order to do that, you need to be replacing the fluids. And hydration protocol is really important particularly in endurance events no matter what activity you do um what is it you know the, that they say even maybe a couple of percentage points of you know dehydration in terms mm. of loss of body can impact upon cognition uh, your decision making as well as your performance so that's really really important um so having a, a hydration protocol um that's individualized to you um, and ensuring that you're uh, consuming fluids regularly is really important. Yeah. Something else that you're excreting as well when through your sweat is your sodium, so your salts. Uh, so when we're sweating, you can taste the salt from the, the, the sweat itself. 
if you're just hydrating with water or something that doesn't have a lot of sodium on it, then we might become uh, we might have low levels of sodium. Then that's called hyponatremia, and that is uh, quite a dangerous situation to be in in terms of you know uh, you know what can happen is you know the body can uh, fluid retention can occur, and then the brain then you know can become swollen and, and pressure could be put on that. That can impact upon obviously your cognition, and the worst case scenario then is you know death really you know so if it happens so you, it can't happen and uh, you know hyponatremia is a really serious um uh as a really potentially a really serious so we've heard it in the news recently you know in the in the healthcare setting you know with the hyponatremia cases with the children and so on like you know uh, and that resulted unfortunately in, in deaths yeah. of the children like so wow. in athletes um that's what you're, you're sweating basically you're excreting salts uh, through your sweat so you need to replace them so that's mm -hmm. what we need to do so um, water should be your primary um, hydration uh, source, uh, but you should also have um, an isotonic uh, drink with, with sodium on it in order to try and replace the salts as well. Or through the foods that you consume, salty foods and so on, depending on the snacks that you consume as, uh, during the race, they'll all provide sodium as well. Yeah. Um, and to say, uh, I'm a, take for example, I'm a just starting out at endurance events. Is there anything that I could do to develop a hydration protocol so on sample it's easy for someone to do? Aye, so that's a really good question. Um, in terms of hydration per se, you now hydration in the population, uh, uh, bring it back to the general population, we can talk about then exercising as well. I think it's, it would be relevant, just to even the casual listener as well. Um, we tend not to drink enough fluid um, yeah. in the population and, and, and what can happen is we can become lethargic, um, can't concentrate, we're less productive, and this, if this happens over a period of time, we, we go to the doctor saying we're tired all the time, can't concentrate and so on, and straight away, more often than not, then the doctor's thinking maybe iron deficiency anemia, you get your bloods checked, they're coming back normal, and what happens is that you're not drinking enough fluid. So um, as a population, we need to be consuming enough fluid in order to be, um, you know, functioning optimally. In terms of, uh, what was the question on hydration? Um, uh, is there any simple way to come up with a hydration, hydration protocol? protocol? Sorry, right. Um, so I, so in, for, in, for general people, and this applies to people who are who consider themselves as athletes or, or competitors, um, they're really simple measures that you can do. There's different ways we can we can assess um, hydration. Um, you can do it in a crude way by looking at the color of your urine. So you can use a urine chart, um, which you can just Google and you can get that down off the internet. Um, and generally, if your urine's darker in color, um, if you're not uh, you're, uh, passing urine frequently um, and the volume is really low, then it's very likely that you're dehydrated. On the other end of that, um, you know, if you're, con if you're uh, peeing a lot, basically, mm -hmm. and uh, it's coming out like a resource, <laughs> like they say <laughs> it, um, if you're peeing a lot, lots of volume, you're going every 10, 15 minutes, then you're overhydrated. Um, and if it's clear so what you should really aim for is maybe a straw color maybe a clearly mm. straw color um and that's a really that's something anybody can do really right. you know just for general um, so just for general and that's the same for athletes you know there's other ways that we can and, and there's studies that have been conducted up in our department looking at different athletes and, and hydration uh pre and post exercise you can look at urine specific gravity so basically what you would do is maybe take a mill of urine um and obviously we're excreting waste um products uh, through your urine so a mill of water 
pure water itself will be will will uh, weigh about a gram, mm. where a mull of urine will weigh just slightly over that. Whenever you take into account what your what's contained within that the sort uh, the, uh, what's dissolved on it. But if you're dehydrated, it's more concentrated. The, yeah. Whatever's dissolved on it, so your the the urine specific gravity will be higher, and that's a a, a biochemical way mm. of assessing that. Obviously, doing that in the field is not practical. Mm. Um, so. Um, the using specific using a urine chart is probably yeah. the most common sense way to do it. So see if I, I'm just thinking out loud. See if, uh, see if I wanted to see how much uh, water I needed for my training. Could I, could I pee before I went out and did my training, and then pee when I come home and see the color? Would that be some sort of crude method of well, this see is, how much I used? Th- this is. Uh, Brings brings it's a really important point actually. Um, brings you back to the point that, you know, if you're before you train, um, if you're drinking a lot of water, you should maybe you shouldn't drink a lot of water too soon before a race or before an event or whatever, because it's going to be on your belly. Yeah. It takes a while for it to be absorbed. That can impact upon your performance. Um, the way that you could, the way that you could um assess, you could have an individualized individualized hydration protocol would be, uh, to weigh yourself before not necessarily pee so what you could do is weigh yourself before a training session uh, and under control conditions then you can do a certain type of training so if it's running uh, at a you know maybe 60 70 80 percent of your um, pr- uh, maximum uh, performance yeah. for a period of time and then weigh yourself after hmm. um, then most of the weight that you lose is going to be as a result of fluid loss and that'll give you an indication as to how much fluid that you're losing you can tr- you can test that in different environmental situations, so in different temperatures, um, at different times of year, different times of day, and so on. So what you would do is weigh yourself in underwear uh, first, so you get a really so you get you know what what your body weighs beforehand. Um, then do your exercise um, and carry out your physical activity, whatever it is that's going to replicate whatever period of the the race that you're going to be on, and then weigh afterwards. And that'll give you an idea, right? There's so much fluid being lost over mm. this hour, so I need to be replacing that. But I can't obviously. So if it's, for example, a liter of fluid that you've lost over an hour, that's pick and a figure picked out of my head here. You, you need to work out a protocol that's going to allow you to replace that over yeah. over the time period. You can't drink a liter of water and then expect to be able to run after. Yeah, so you yeah. need to be, be spread it out over that. Right. So it's about working that out. Do you dry yourself as much as you can before weighing yourself aye. the second so time? So it would be practice, aye. aye. So it's, yeah. So it would be good practice, aye. And see if you, see if you try to run that experiment and you're already dehydrated yes, before good, that? Good, good question. Is that going to affect how much fluid you lost and then? Aye. aye. Well, possibly, aye. So you need to be... Poss- so, yeah. So try, try and ensure... Yeah. So you're, you're thinking in the right way, I would say, here. So it's really about controlling the conditions. So whenever you're carrying out these types of experiments or carrying out these types of um, you know tests, it's really about trying to manage and control as much of the variable as many of the variables as possible. So it's a really really good point. So if you're going to do it at a certain time of day, um, try and ensure that Blaine would be well hydrated beforehand. So you could potentially do that. You could say, right, Blaine, I want you to consume uh, so much water after you get up in the morning. Um, you could maybe get him to pee into a, a universal wee tube. Um, have a look at the color of the urine. If it's if it's not too dark in the urine uh, chart, then you can say right, we're happy enough to proceed with this uh, experiment. So we're mm-hmm. going to carry out a, a physical activity, uh, uh, 
event or activity um, over a period of time, maybe take a note of the conditions uh, in terms of temperature and so on, and then you know way before in underwear and then after the um, activity, then dry yourself off as much as possible and weigh yourself after. Most at that large fluctuations in weight over short periods of time is water is fluid. Yeah, fluid. Uh, and what about um, the length of time that you that you would train for? Is there any you know desired length? That should you run for an hour and then try, or will you get accurate results if you do it for fifteen minutes? Or well, that's something that you could probably test. You know, this is something that I, I can't tell you straight off the bat. I'm sure there's literature out there that could that could advise on that, and that's what you would tend to do. You would go to a literature, be guided by what protocols are out there, and that'll be really much de- that'll be very much determined by. You know, different, when we talk about sports nutrition, there's so many different types of sports mm-hmm. and the outcomes. People, some people want to be big. Strength's important. Some, you know, cardiovascular fitness is really important for some sports and so on. So what you need to do is, whenever you're um, looking at the literature, really do it in a critical way. You know, don't pick, pick it as red. If a study looks gives you certain information, was it in a population that's going to be relevant to your mm-hmm. client? Um, was it done in a, in a way that you feel that would be robust uh, and is reproducible and is uh, and is the evidence that's being produced reliable uh, but still you can try and get someone that's going to be relevant to you and what you're trying to achieve and then carry out that and again bringing it back to the individual individualization aspect so blame's going to be different to you know the, the next person mm. so, so it could be part of the experiment too we run this length of length of time i would say so i so you know uh, I, I would suggest what what they would say usually is that what is it that you would you wouldn't necessarily need to be hydrating just as much or even maybe consuming carbohydrates for the first hour you know mm. maybe and then after that then you would maybe put on the place you know maybe for this particular race I think you would need to maybe be consuming straight off the bat you just know just bets, uh, uh, the I what I would suggest doing is is writing up a protocol that's going to allow you to assess um, hydration status pre and post and alter one thing at a time yeah. so is it going to be the duration as if it's going to be in a gym trying to moderate the the, the temperature of the gym and see so if it's going to well, isn't it march isn't it the race that's happening so we can maybe safely assume that it's not going to be that warm yeah. <laughs> um you know trying to replicate the condition conditions as such so that can give you a more informed yeah. approach um and then using that as a way of trying to then generate mm. that and then you can start to assess performance after that so if you say right well based on these um you know hydration protocol these experiments they they inform our hydration protocol you know how to blame find you know consuming maybe 500 ml of water every half hour mm. you know what did it, did it work for you if it didn't you know can we modify that in some way to ensure mm. that the volume is being replaced that's not going to impact upon your performance and after that so it's just about maybe doing it in a systematic way it's a really handy one too like if you if you've never heard that before and you meet somebody and they're like they're like no i need to drink huh. like 100 ml every 20 minutes because that's my uh, hydration requirements you'd be thinking jesus this boy knows what he's talking about like <laughs> but, but it's, it's a really simple experiment they run like there are guidelines out there in relation to you know the iom um will have guidelines and i think they'd be freely available but again They'll be general guidelines and, and they are qualified as such like they're you know it's the same as the health eating guidelines everything everything's an individual and it needs to apply to your your everyday life mm. and blaine i think given the severity or given the, the how extreme the event is it's a case of really putting as much prep covering all as many of the bases as you can yeah. beforehand and preparing as best you can and giving <coughs> yourself that uh, 
the best chance of success, you know, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So why the the hydration, you know, it's a simple enough experiment. Uh, um cool. and you know, it should be easy enough to do. And you can just, just like log the the conditions and just go right, we're gonna run this experiment today and it's simple as that, like you know. Yeah. So you might see yourself. variation there. Mm. So, you know what you'll have is inter individual variation um, and the variation between individuals and you can even get variation within so different things within the same person so you might re- you might um, re- uh, react in a certain way six months ago but it might be different and that yeah. could be down to different things it could be down to your level of fitness the level level of your technique and so on so the general guidelines are there to inform us and that, that, that would be good enough for most people you know but um, if you wanted to look at it, that, add it in a wee bit more detail, and that type of thing could uh, be done. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good one. I like it. I think we should, should do, do that. that yeah. uh, it's just so simple. It's stupid not to do it. Like, hmm. um, and so uh, hydration is figure out your hydration first, and then well, definitely one of the fund- fundamentals anyway, and then start approaching macronutrient composition. Then, yeah, hydration is really so. You, your hydration is really important. Um, and then obviously then the sodium is linked to that as well. Whether you take it via foods, or whether it's going to be sodium uh, salt tablets or whatever yeah. it might be, something that works for you. The the as I say, the main hydration source I would I would suggest would have to be water, the primary one anyway. Um, but also maybe looking at drinks. We were talking earlier about how your body would digest and absorb the, the nutrients and the energy. The quickest way that the body can access the carbohydrates, for example, might be via a, a liquid source. Mm. So energy drinks may have a place, but you need to take into consideration how they might impact upon your yeah. your stomach and how that might impact upon your GI symptoms and so on. Is it going to leave you with cramps? Is it going to leave you with bloatedness? You know, yeah. Uh, going to leave you nauseous, all that type of stuff. And that's where your preparation comes in as well. You see with the, all his food and that's going to be sitting outside and his gels and it's going to be outside with the temperature of the food have much effect on the absorption value or... Is it not even really a consideration? Need, need to um, I suppose it, uh, I, I can't see how the temperature of the food would be would be would be a big issue. I don't no. think. I think what might be a consideration is, is how long the food would be. Depending on the food choice that you make, like, and if it's you know high protein foods, might be uh, might be at higher risk of you know bacterial contamination. So mm. the temperature of the food would be important in that regard. So if there is a chance that the food maybe was prepared, you no, know, making sure that. Uh, good food hygiene is, is being followed good hygiene uh, food hygiene so making sure that they reduce the risk of that um, but in terms of digestion I don't I'm, I'm not aware of how that would be mm. a big issue now yeah. the form that the food takes the food matrix um, would be important uh, so um, you know a solid may take longer to digest um, than a liquid yeah and so on the composition then you know the different macronutrient composition um, would be important as well so carbohydrates um, mixed away fat so fat takes longer to digest so it'll take longer for that to leave the stomach yeah. so your stomach's main purpose is really to digest break down the foods they make it accessible to the small intestine passes it into the small intestine then and then that's where the absorption and some digestion and, and the absorption really occurs um, so if you have like a high fat content um, of, of a product then you need to take into consideration the fact that although it's high in energy and may give you that energy that you require it, it's going to take longer for that they oh. pass under the small absorb, uh, small intestine and then it's going to take longer for it to be absorbed may increase the risk of you know cramps and so on and, and, and um, adverse symptoms that yeah. may impact 
upon your performance then at the end of the day yeah so um hydration loads of carbohydrates maybe supplement and multivitamin i'm just thinking if i'm somebody now who's not sure what they're doing what considerations am i making how important then is protein protein in terms of recovery what kind of considerations do you need to make around that so um proteins well, we, we, we've seen the explosion of protein shakes and protein products and protein everything. We're, we're, we're seeing it now yeah. everywhere see them the, the breakfast cereal companies have jumped on board now we we all sorts of protein products we're obsessed with it okay so again just they start from a general population point of view and i'll go into the specifics of the um, the the performance mm. most of us are getting the protein that we require from our diet we eat a lot of meat um, in our diet the western diet uh, includes a lot of meat we're getting enough protein uh, as a population, I would say. Um, so for the general uh, casual, you know, person that's that's working out, um, the likes of protein shakes um, may not be required. However, the timing. This is where I suppose the protein shakes can be important. Is the timing of the protein um, can be important. And right, if I could go back and try and address your question. In terms of performance, endurance racing, and so on, um, it depends what you're trying to achieve. So if, if somebody's looking to bulk up, protein's obviously really important, mm. along with a sufficient amount of energy. If you consume lots and lots of protein and not enough energy, your body needs energy in order to have that anabolic effect and, yeah. and be able to build up the muscle. For endurance racing, um, of course, the, the physical activity that you're undergoing, they prepare for the race, is going to be breaking the body down. Now, it depends what you want to be doing. Do you want to be building yourself up as part of that? Um, or do you want to be just maintaining what your body composition is and so on? Mm -hmm. And that'll determine then whether, how much protein that you require and might determine then the, the actual, uh, when you consume the protein and how you consume it and so on. Yeah. So I suppose protein is important, but it really needs to come in you know, in the context of your wider diet. It's yeah. not protein. Protein isn't a be-all, end-all. And in terms of endurance racing, it's really important to re remember as well that protein is satiating. Yeah. So it fills you up and keeps you fuller for longer. Um, so if you think about eggs, for example, it's well known that eggs will fill you up and you'll not want to mm. eat after. It's great, um, you know, in that regard. But if you if we tie it back in, the, the carbohydrates yes. that your body requires, yes. they, re they replace it, the glycogen stores. You don't want the protein to be displacing the carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're already somebody that has problems with maybe eating enough food anyway, having a protein shake, which may be impairing then your subsequent meal, could impair then your ability to replace the glycogen. So it depends on the sport. Mm. If it's a power sport, protein uh, will maybe really be important. Um, but even then, you should try and maximize what you're having through your diet um, and then having it along with an adequate amount of energy as well to allow your body to utilize the protein. So the metabolic processes that are that are taking place within the body, they're energy consuming. So uh, anabolism um, really consumes energy um, and the body breaks itself down to release energy as such, if that's what you want to call it. So you need enough energy. And in endurance racing, the primary source of energy is going to have to be carbohydrates. That's mm -hmm. where the strongest evidence is for, you know, performance. Yeah. So, don't know if that answers your question. I know what to say. <laughs> um, protein's nearly synonymous with health now, isn't it? The yeah. way it's marketed, like, yeah. you know, 
stick protein on someone and then they can ramp up the sugar and the calories and people think it's healthier. Like. Well, that's a really tricky one. Like you know, I think people should uh, inform themselves uh, in, in relation to that. I think it, it is important. I think there's a lot, lots of research out there uh, looking at protein and, and its impact on you know, uh, muscle uh, synthesis and so on. Now, mm. I'm not an expert in the area. I'm not going to lay it on that I am. And uh, from what I do know, the timing of the protein is potentially important. So consuming that protein soon after or within a certain time period will help you maximize but even if you want to apply it to the casual i'm trying to think of this what word am i thinking about who's a casual exerciser what what is it you know the, the gym goer and so on yeah we're normal people we're not elite athletes so we're probably not going to notice that much of a difference yeah, i would yeah. say um we have, pro- we, we have protein shakes and what i would suggest as well is that if you're eating a normal diet and then consuming a protein shake as well on top of a normal diet your body can only utilize a certain amount of the protein um and believe it or not um you know the main fuel sources so what happens is is your body as i said is in a constant state of flux so it's constantly fighting the balance out so it's uh, if you want to think about it as a large chemistry experiment going on at the same time like where if you're introducing things that it starts the it's it moves the one side so if you're introducing a lot of energy it needs to do so much energy so certain processes are put in place they either use the energy or else store the energy um and while you're eating carbohydrates while you're eating fats or proteins if you eat too much protein um your body will excrete um what it doesn't need but it'll also then some of the protein will be stored as fat as well yeah so you could actually if you're looking to lose weight then you're eating a lot of protein and you're eating too much of it then what, what could potentially happen is that you could be put on with it mm. as well like you know but because like, it, it, is, it's, it seems to be that it's the end thing at the moment, like, you yeah. know, protein. And they go back to earlier on, the, what we talked about in terms of, you know, singling out nutrients, we shouldn't do it. We should be looking at the bigger picture. Mm. Look it's, at it in the context of the overall diet. Yeah. Do you see putting on weight from taking protein? Obviously, again, that's in the context of a calorie surplus. You yeah. wouldn't. You yeah. Wouldn't, uh, so, so it is, yeah. Yeah. Essentially. So if your body... So your body will have a the, the amino acid pool in the body is in constant flux as well. So you're constantly breaking yourself. Your body's breaking itself down. It's yeah. building itself up. Exercise does that in a more extreme way, but then that puts on the place then you know anabolic processes that the body will build itself back up again. And that's the, pr- the principle of exercising to be stronger and and, and fitter. Yeah. Um. But if it doesn't, you know, if you exceed what your body can actually utilize, it needs to do something. Yeah. Like yeah, it. yeah. 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 So. Yeah. I suppose it's a it's a balancing act, like isn't it, in terms of your your protein? Because in one respect, you you want to get stronger, uh, but then your nutrient requirements change then too. The more muscle mass you get, so you need to factor yeah. that in. And what's well, that? So it's metabolic metabolically active. Mm. So basically, um, you know, your if your muscle mass increases, then you've got more metabolically active tissue. Yeah. Um, then potentially your energy requirements increase. And what I would suggest, even uh, for your listeners as well, it is very much an individual approach. Know your body as well as you can. Yeah. Find out what works for you. But then try to consider the overall diet and what is my diet doing for me. Not Don't just think about weight. Don't just mm. think about the macronutrients. Think about the, you know, am I getting what I need in terms of the micronutrients? And I'm trying to have that good relationship rather than having, like, I can't have that food because yeah. it's bad in relation to my weight. And then having that negative aspect relationship almost with yeah and so is there any if you're not taking on enough and maybe you're not aware is there any signs like would people be grumpy or tired more often or 
you know what what kind of things can throw a red flag up that you mightn't be fueling right for your, your fueling training? Right. Uh, well in terms of carbohydrates now um, the, the types of things um, the types of symptoms that people would experience with very low carbohydrate uh, diets and I, and I would I would guess that you would probably see these as well if you're not fueling properly well or you know maybe lightheadedness maybe you know you know, lethargy, um, inability to concentrate, definitely bad form, um, you know, maybe people being snappy and so on. Mm. And some people say that's withdrawal from carbohydrates, so that's a good thing if we're, if we're withdrawn from something. Yeah. Um, but that's what you might see. In terms of your performance, you might find that you ran for an hour last week and you were, you know, you had fueled properly and it was grand. But if you're running this week, you know, conditions are almost the same and you're fine, geez, it's mm. wild hard, like, you know yeah. what I mean? That could be down to the fact that you're not replenishing those glycogen stores. So it's again, knowing your body, being honest with yourself, and not trying to force yourself through a situation. You listen to your body basically, and and, and 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 react to that. Yeah, I suppose something you can do is on the days that you have a really bad day, you can really record record everything that you did that day, and when you have another one, see if anything's mm. the same as the previous day. Aye, in terms and of. Maybe in terms, your, of diet. Your, in terms of your diet, yeah. in terms of your hydration, your sleep and stuff like that, you know. Aye, aye. Well, you're you're talking about sleep's a uh, massive issue, really. It's um in terms of your food choice and the behaviours that you touched on previously. Um, but in terms of I trying to be systematic and with you know collecting information, it's easy to say I write down keep a food diary and all the rest of it. But it's boring. I mean, mm. they lie in this report. Self-reported dietary intake is notoriously terrible, unreliable. You know, <laughs> so you need yeah. to. It's not that it's totally useless, but you need to take you need to interpret it with caution and be aware that, you know, you know, the information isn't always accurate. Um, if you're an athlete and you're preparing for a race, you tend to be you're you're on the more motivated side mm -hmm. of the spectrum, really. Um, and therefore you would hope that, you know, if you're listening to your body, um, you're aware of what your needs are and so on and what your behaviours were, then you'll be able to record that information and be aware of it more so that then you can make plans going forward really mm -hmm. i think there there is definitely huge benefits to logging your food um yeah. like when when i sent you a, a diet plan you you'd asked me to send up what i what i'd eaten that week and just by logging it it, it was kind of encouraging to, to eat better and that as you said on the day you know once you start looking at something and that's that's when you really focus on it um i suppose then it comes down to discipline and keeping that up because once I stopped logging my food, then you know what, it was nearly like right. I'll log my food this week. Logged it, and I'd pro it was probably the best I had ate throughout the whole process. You know, what, one week of really good diet, and then sent it off, and I was like, right, that's sent off now. I don't need to log anymore. And then once I stopped logging, that's when you when I find my diet kind of went down again. So, but you're on to the point about behaviour again. So uh, as soon mm -hmm. as we as soon as we start logging on something, or we start trying to, or people feel that they're being you know, you're collecting information, their, their behaviour changes, mm. and that's what happens. Uh, people's behaviour changes, so it's really important to try and collect information on your habitual uh, intake. Um, and it's easier said than done, like we all do it. Um, we all have social pressures and we tend to over-report foods that are more socially desirable, such as your fruits and vegetables, and under-report the foods that would be less socially desirable or maybe have less of a good name in the, in yeah. the media, your sugar, sugar sweetened beverages and so on. Um, we'll under-report those types of foods or takeaways and whatnot. So, I, you know, whenever you're collecting that information, I think it's trying to do it in as reliable a way as possible yeah. because the more reliable the information and the more reflective of it, of it that it is of your 
habits, then the better informed that you will be or the better able you will be to address it mm. and prepare for the risk. Um, so it's a re- it sort of highlights a challenge that we would have in nutrition research where, um, you know, you start asking people what they normally consume and they do change their behaviours. It's, it's, and, and trying to then investigate nutrition in relation to health is really problematic. And mm. that's where my work, I suppose, with sweeteners came in. If you get somebody to pee in their bucket, as long as they're collecting the pee in the right way and they're not, you know, dosing it with sweeteners, then you're getting yeah. an objective yeah. measure and you're bypassing all that behaviour change and so on, like, you know. And you would imagine, too, for a, from a health perspective, for researchers trying to figure out what's good and what's bad nutritionally it must be really hard to control for you know people's diets you know it's basically a 24-7 thing they try and control their, their diets which you can have a it's impossible uh, so, yeah, it was a really valid point that you highlighted Blaine in terms of you can do all the you know the what we call gold standard in, in, in research is randomised control trials mm-hmm. um, so these are the, the things that you can control for all the variables but they but they're not it's very difficult to replicate real life scenarios when you're out there with all the triggers that we talked about earlier and so on and the choices that people make um, and then so it's about interpreting the information and the evidence that's out there with a level of caution and not really necessarily believing everything that you say and, and then trying to have the most informed make the most informed decision that you can based on what is available mm-hmm. and what is individual and what will work for you and again it comes back to what works for you you'll know yourself if your weight's going up you have an idea then that you're possibly maybe consuming too much energy or consuming too much or else you're just not exercising enough um or indeed if you're losing weight then it, it, it could be vice versa you need to you need to maybe try and consume a wee bit more and then just reflect on your on your own habits and trying to address those yeah right that was a lot on endurance <laughs> will we jump on this something a wee bit more that was loads was, was there anything else I think yeah. that covers everything yeah. I don't think I could talk about anything in there yeah. is that enough detail for you that's that's plenty. that is plenty um, will we move on to is probably something a lot more relatable to um, our listeners dietary protocols you know it's there's there's um, you, there's always a new diet trending you know a new diet protocol um, what's your view on dietary protocols are they useful do you mean uh, fad diets or such? Fad or? diets, aye. Um, you know, well, f- again, I suppose uh, throughout what I've, what I've been talking about, I've been talking about how it's important to have someone that works for you and you can comply with and that you can maintain. All right, so there's a, there's a certain level of flexibility in relation to, if we're talking about health, um, there's a certain level of flexibility within which, you know, the general health eating guidelines, which very, very few people actually follow, um, you know, will allow you to choose certain types of foods in order to for you to be able to get the nutrition that you require. Fad diet. Well, let let's set the context. There's a lot of money to be made in health. Mm. You know what I mean. So we're all more and more interested in health. We want to be delaying the onset of any conditions. We want to be able to get the a healthy weight. We want to look good and so on. And we're ripe for picking ah. for people to make money out of out of us at the end of the day. Um and. Continually, we're seeing if it's fad diets that you're you're referring to, we're continually seeing these types of diets were very extreme. Um, quite often they, they can result in you know the you know excluding certain food groups from the diet. But then if we think back to the things I was talking about earlier in relation to 
certain foods will provide you with certain nutrients. There's no one food that'll give everything mm. that you require. But if you exclude a whole food group over a period of time, that can cause issues. Yeah. So basically, fad diets um, are based on the context. They're the, 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 the pretext that they will allow you to look better, you'll feel better, um, you'll be a healthier weight and so on. And they work. Mm. But they're a quick fix quite often. And mm. Did I say they work, right? Let me go back and say <laughs> they, they don't work. They might work in the short term. Um, so if it's weight, for example, you know, uh, in terms of your hypocaloric diets, like maybe very low uh, carbohydrate diets, um, you know, carbohydrates the main fuel source in the body. If you cut that out of the diet, of course you're going to lose weight. Your yeah. body's going to have mm. to either, if you're not providing it elsewhere in the diet, your body's going to have to find the, the energy from somewhere and you're going to lose weight. So that's mm. an effective way to lose weight. There's no doubt about it. Is it an effective way to stay healthy in the longer term? I would question it. You know, in terms of starchy foods and carbohydrates, there's a lot of goodness there as well. So it's all about moderation. And that's where fad diets in general, um, you know, promise a lot. And quite often they do deliver those short-term results um, if they're followed in, a, in, in, in the proper way. But then people revert back to their behaviours, which again is a key word, I suppose, in this conversation. And then they don't address the underlying reasons why they did get over it in the first place. Yeah. So in my opinion, fad diets um, are probably not a good thing mm -hmm. in general, and I wouldn't recommend them. Um, if, you know, the likes of very low carbohydrate diets, you know, can be used. They achieve outcomes. So for somebody who's morbidly obese, for example, who may not be able to undergo surgery that they require, these types of diets can be actually very useful for helping people lose weight, but they need to be undertaken under supervision of yeah. suitably qualified professionals. Um, and if it is a case of your, you know, having a very low carbohydrate diet or a certain type of diet that's very low in energy, um, you need to make sure that you're meeting the nutritional requirements and 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 other aspects as well in terms of mm -hmm. micronutrients. So there's a lot of sort of pitfalls, potential pitfalls mm -hmm. in following fad diets. And I'm not. I wouldn't necessarily recommend going on them. I don't think they're. I don't think they address the underlying problem in most cases. Yeah, and there's no one size fits all for anyone either. So what yeah. works for one person is not necessarily going to work for someone else. Mm -hmm. So saying you know the the five two diet gets X results, it's it's never going to work for everyone. Like that's it. Hey, um, you know, over time, if you if you've got a five two diet, um, and over time your body's receiving the nutrients it requires, and it works yeah. for you and your in your in your daily life mm. crack on hey? you mm. know what i mean um but if you're a parent and you're cooking food for children and so on and you know having to then go and prepare a different meal for yourself and your you know smells of food and, and the temptations around that and all the rest of it and and if you have a certain area if you have a certain work pattern and so on mm. it may not be applicable and it was a really valid point and it brings it back to you know individual uh, uh, making your advice individual uh individual to the person tailored to the person it's really really important and if you're reflecting on it yourself in terms of what changing your own dietary practices try and find something that works for you but keep it in, keep it in mind you want the right balance of nutrients from the diet that you're going to follow yeah so i suppose the bottom line in relation to fad diets is i the one size doesn't fit all um yeah. it can I, I suppose if you they're not the answer so they're not a panacea they're not they're not going to answer the problem of obesity and so on it's not going to be a quick fix obesity didn't happen quickly people don't tend not to put weight on quickly so we're not designed they put they take weight off quickly either like so um our body will fight against it mm. so at the end of the day and they all just seem to be different methods of calorie restriction 
you know, yeah. cutting out carbs. If you just restrict calories and have a nice varied diet, you'll chances are you're adhering somebody and increase to you. Well, the latest I've made a few references to low carb diets and so on, and it's not that they're necessarily a bad thing, you know, provided you're getting enough nutrition. Uh, but it applies to all. Mm. If you look at the types of diets, the fad diets, they tend to fall in the, the category of being hypocaloric. So uh, there's a deficit created of energy. Yeah. Where I have an issue from a healthcare professional perspective is the fact that you know these books are, are being published by people, people with not necessarily the background in nutrition. Mm-hmm. They're interested in making money uh, and they're manipulating people's fears and concerns around their own health. And people want they look better they want to be healthier and so on um and they're following these diets and potentially some of the diets might be deficient in certain nutrients and then what you're what you're doing then is kicking the can down the street you're increasing the risk of you know adverse health outcomes down mm-hmm. the line so it's really about making gradual achievable changes over time in most cases um that and then building upon those mm-hmm. if you give yourself you know too much to do um, too soon psychologically it can be too challenging you know it can be yeah. it can be detrimental to your progress so as well as at the same you don't you know you would need an elephant all in one go sort of thing you would need yeah. small chunks so give yourself small achievable targets um and realistic targets mm. so smart goals um and then uh you know acknowledging and patting yourself on the back whenever you achieve those small goals and building upon them yeah. and being trying to be realistic with it like yeah that type of approach i would i would suggest would be is, is one that would be much more uh, likely to result in success down the line in the longer yeah. term. A few people have asked us to ask you specifically about certain diets like keto. Would you know? Would you be able to talk? Ketogenic it? diets. Yeah. Um, in what context? In terms of just people using them and for you know weight loss, are they again? It's probably the, same, the exact same prescription as for weight loss. Mm. Uh, so basically, ketogenic diets. What happens is is uh, the it has low carb so you're mm. basically starving the body of carbohydrates and what the body does then is turn to fats uh, for the for energy and that results in the produ- production of ketones then um, so ketogenic diets um, again um, how effective they are they're probably effective at losing weight but do they address the underlying problem in relation to why the person had gained weight in the first place mm. so could they be used in conjunction with a, a longer term plan they say right well look if i do this they lose weight quickly um and then maybe put on a plan in place that would you know have you know moderate moderate sources of carbohydrates i don't know we can in theory that could work but do people have the level of knowledge that they need um or would they need more expert input for supervisory purposes like you know so i suppose um the the fundamental point is that I would ask, or the fundamental question I would ask of ketogenic diets as well as, you know, any other type of diet that would be similar to that is, do they ask yourself, do they address the underlying reason why you've put the weight on in the first place, or, or not? Yeah. And if it hasn't, then do you need to put into place some measures to uh, try and prevent the weight gain again at some point? You know. Hmm. So the ketogenic diets are they followed for a long period of time? Are they? Are they some people are. Really? on them inevitably um apparently there's some issues with you know glucose is fuel for the brain um and apparently it takes about six months for ketones to break through that blood brain barrier so for like six months they're wrecked they uh, can't think straight and all yeah the rest of like it. but then you spit out so that there's a, there's you know 
there's there's a lot of people vocal on social media and so mm. on in relation to low carb high fat diets you know and there's people really really swear by these types of diets that you know will help address the obesity problem will uh, help reverse type 2 diabetes and will and will do that as far as I'm aware the evidence isn't there in the longer term they yeah. need to show their efficacy um, I think about the practical whenever somebody asks me about a certain type of diet straight away I'm thinking right how practical is this diet going to be mm-hmm. in the longer term are you going to be happy on the diet are you going to enjoy it are you going to have that positive relationship with food and if the answer is yes on a ketogenic diet who am I to say you know you're you can go and make your own choices yeah i think if it's in certain populations um where it could you know result it could be dangerous for people um maybe people who are clinically at risk then i would have a real issue with that um and i suppose it always boils down to the fact it boils down to the question then um is it on is it addressing the underlying issue um or the underlying reason of why you have got there where you've got there today and that's about you know reflecting on your on on your own practices and your own mm. behaviours and trying to address those really. So uh, I don't think I've answered the question sort of conclusively, but I've maybe hopefully given some of food for thought as mm. part of my plan. <laughs> Everybody wants the magic pill, don't they? I think that's a problem. There's none sexy well, about well, moderation and eating uh, not a really. very diet. Like. It's not that these types of, you know, in, in clinical practice, these, you know, these really, really strict uh, hypocaloric diets are utilized for certain patient groups and there's nothing they say that this can't be done in theory i would say out, out in healthy populations trying to achieve you know certain outcomes it's just that they're very they can be very severe in mm. terms of the diets they can be very low in certain nutrients um and therefore you need that input um from people who are suitably qualified to provide the advice and like it's right people want the quick fix and and for the vast majority of people there is no such thing as a quick fix if yeah. you know what I mean um, so took you years to put on the weight took you years to take it usually I, I for, for you know, weight gain happens slowly we only need to consume what is it 100 calories a day over a period of you know years they really put on stones mm-hmm. you know and weight so and it's it, weight gain is just a it's a it's a bit of a, over the past 30-40 years it's been a wee bit of a disaster in terms yeah. of public health um, so it's 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 something that's it's a real big challenge. I suppose as a dietitian and as a researcher, I'm trying to carry out research that'll help people, you know, have evidence based ways and informed ways of trying to manage their weight mm-hmm. in a way that's meaningful to them and they can comply with. You know, so that's that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Before we started, you talked mm-hmm. about um, a study that you're looking under at the minute using technology to see if you can alter uh, people's diets or. or can you talk about that or what you're planning on doing? I could surely, yeah, if you're if you're happy to listen to it. <laughs> um, so, as I say, my primary area of re- uh, research interest is in low calorie sweeteners, but I also have other research interests, you know, obesity research in, in general. And um, whenever I was uh, an undergrad student and then you know uh, working on my PhD, um, I was involved in one of the local healthy living centres of Bogside and Brandywell Health Forum, and I would have got involved in some. Know, just delivering healthy eating talks mm. and so on the, the certain groups but uh, here in Derry the old library trust deliver a, a family focused um, obesity prevention and management program um, in the community um, so they engage at the family level they try and instill healthy behaviours um, so trying to help families make better choices trying to improve the dynamic within the family improve relationships so helping them become more active together 
um, improving the you know the psychology and the mental well-being within the family and then obviously then trying to address the dietary aspects so I, I've been aware of the sweet project for uh, which is, is run by the OLT uh, and directed by George McGowan and, and Julie White um, for a while so I've been aware of it for a while um, so the story goes uh, last year the wife bought me um, an Amazon Alexa or is it Amazon yeah. Alexa yeah. the wee dot and yeah. I'm turning on the media fairly cynical what the, <laughs> what the fuck's it's all about sort of thing like you know what what sort of use do these things have yeah. so obviously they're quite good for you know music so if you're sitting having a, having a few bevies or whatever in a house and you put mm. on you can ask it to play music so it's, it's good that way but I started thinking about how how it could be used to improve health so that's that's what I'm interested in uh, and in research as well so I thought I met up with Angela a friend of mine and she's a lecturer in a school of sport up in, up in McGee and last year it was actually uh, Christmas drinks we opened the Belfast markets I was telling her about it and I was thinking you know could we we started to have a discussion around how we could use this you know they call them intelligent personal systems you know smart speakers mm. in a way that could enhance you know the effectiveness of programs such as sweet so basically if you think the families are coming to the sweet program once or twice a week and they're taking part in these activities and it's great there's a real buzz we go to the gym we, we have exercise there's a real buzz but then we go back on, the, on their own environment and then we talk about that environment and all the triggers again mm. our behaviors going back to normal again then so there's a real risk that that might happen within families. So while they're at the intervention, they're they're great and their and their behaviour changes. But then is that is their behaviours being maintained, um, whenever they're back home? So what I thought was, would it be a good idea to have these smart speakers within the home, that could provide that tailored advice that aligned with the intervention that was being delivered through the Sweet Project? So what we're going to do is we're running a small scale study. Um. Uh, it's going to happen in the new year, um, so it's a pilot study, feasibility, just to see if something's feasible before we roll it out on a larger scale. And we're going to give, uh, there's going to be a certain number of families and half of them are going to be randomly assigned to receive the Alexa um, and half will just go through the programme as normal. And through the Alexa, the families that have received that, uh, they'll, they'll get motivational uh, tips, they'll get reminders and prompts that align with the great goals that were achieved. That, that, that were given or agreed within the sweet project so it could be related to diet it could be related to doing certain exercises so it could be doing star jumps in the living room you've mm -hmm. agreed to do 10 star jumps every day for this week so it could be a reminder coming through the speaker to do that and so on so what we want to suppose what are the hypothesis that we're trying to test is that these things can enhance or you know enhance the effectiveness of the you know face-to-face -face programs that you see mm. and then help healthy health related behaviors sustainable health related behaviors beyond the program itself um so that's going to run over i think it's going to run over maybe about six months in the new year but that's what we're trying to do so basically yeah. using these smart speakers in a way to try and support you know the interventions that are right there mm. be interesting to see the results of that to mm. see how it comes in kind of aligns with our last podcast aiden talked about about this nudge theory where you uh, set we prompts to they try and keep you in line with your goals and it's it's more or less if, it, if it's still if the information's delivered in a certain way you know obviously it, it might grate on you in terms of the voice you know, and so on and how it's delivered and when the information's delivered and that's the reason why we're doing it um we're not it's a feasibility study so we're going to do some qualitative work do focus groups with the families as well they see if um just they see if 
you know, get their feedback. What were the barriers? Did the use, you know, did they like using it? Was it used? Why, you know, what ways could it be used in the future? Mm-hmm. And then what we're hoping that that does is inform then a, a bigger project that we can go for, you know, a larger scale and roll out over a longer period of time. So, you know, just maybe put a lot of resources and effort on the design and so on. You're just trying to test the mm. feasibility of it first, and that can then justify going forward and, and spending more money on something like greener. Mm. So that's one of the research projects that I'm I'm involved with that's going to be running in the in the new year. So we'll see we'll see what comes out. I'll let uh, you know how it goes. Sure, sounds interesting. Uh, Who's doing your voiceovers? <laughs> see, it's, it's going to be Alexa. I think that's <laughs> what we're going to do. Um, but you're you're on the something there is an idea that that I that I would have had as well. So if you can make the voices personalised voice so if it's from a familiar voice uh, or from uh, a you know or some, a someone that's really motivating like Dwayne James, the Rock James Johnson James or something oh, well, I was, is that <laughs> the, uh, what you do you say the Rock <laughs> I think there is I think somebody was telling me there is it's, I guess it's a new concept you know I think there is an app that you can download where you can get the motivational from the Rock but yeah. I think it's very mm-hmm. you know harsh <laughs> so <laughs> just thinking you need to pitch it at the right level and yeah. maybe you know there's different ways of motivating different people so you know the harsh approach does work for some people but not yeah. not all people oh, so yeah. um the familiar voices so somebody could say that they're on the football and if it's like alexa as i say locally here maybe james mclean or something like that so somebody looks up to him if you heard james mclean telling you to eat eat a banana a day or uh, whatever it might be you know uh, even a child might be more mm. willing to do that uh, so it's 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 something that we that we that we're considering definitely going forward but i think for this project it'll be Alexa, oh, monotone Alexa, probably <laughs> just all over it. Like so, we'll see how it goes. So it'll be interesting to see. It's good, Anna. Ah, it is. Fad diets sort of touched on it, about misinformation and poor information within the nutrition industry. Um, and you spoke a wee bit about social media too. Any, anything you want to add on that? Um, about how it, how people can be misled, nutritionally speaking, or I just think it. Nutrition is the most of it. I don't. Uh, I'm a nutritionist, dietitian, like really. Um, it has to be the most difficult science, really, for looking at the effects as well as trying to influence behavior. Like because we're we're born, we're consuming as soon as we're born. We develop our beliefs, we develop our habits, and so on, and we have certain ways of doing things. Not only that, the external factors such as our job and what types of foods that we can afford, hmm. um, are really important in terms of our dietary habits, um. And because of that, and people have really ingrained opinions about their food and nutrition, um, it's really difficult to try and help people change behaviours in a way that's going to help them improve their health, you know. And that's grand, that's just the way the world is, you know. We don't want people who can't think for themselves. We, mm. we, we, that's not what we want, and that maybe touches on the point that you were, you were mentioning there about the nudge theory. If you can present people with the information... Um, given the skills and the knowledge, they they be able to make the choices that are going to be meaningful to them. Then, like we're, we love we live in a free world, really. Like let people make those choices, and it's the same way getting information. And I think because of, uh, I mentioned it before, because there's so much money in the health industry, and and we all want to be as healthy as possible. We want to live as long as possible. We want to be able to you know um, lead as healthy uh, as a life as as possible. Um. We are, because of that, in my opinion, we're quite vulnerable. The, the people providing that level of information that isn't always backed up by the evidence, the scientific evidence. So mm. um, I think we're hitting on there a really important point um, in terms of, um, you know, people will have their beliefs, um, but at the same time, most people want to learn as well. Um, and it's important that whenever you're accessing information that you try and look at it in a critical way. 
and maybe have a few questions that you ask yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, they try and assess the credibility of the information that you're, you know, would you go out if a boy pulled up in a ladder and told you he could, you know, drive at 150 mile an hour on it or whatever, you know, would you believe him? Or would you mm-hmm. go through those questions and say, well, sounds too good to be true, it's not going right. to happen. The same way if somebody's on Twitter or on Facebook saying I can, if you drink these shakes, meal replacers, I can help you get a six pack in six days. Hmm. You know, although that you're really desperate to have a six pack, you know, you need to go through and think logically, is this likely or does it sound too good to be true? And unfortunately, in most cases, if not all cases, if it sounds too good to be true, then <laughs> it, it is too good to be true. Like. <laughs> so yeah. um, I think in terms of the information gathering, in terms of websites that you would, you know, access is, or even maybe people's individual, uh, individuals' websites, it's really about looking under the credentials of the, the source. Mm. So the person that's providing the information, are they qualified in the in the area that they're purporting to have knowledge on? Look at their, look at the 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 information on them, the background information. Is it lacking? If they're very sketchy in the information, definitely that should raise suspicions. If the information that they're providing is maybe sounds too good to be true, then again that should raise suspicions. So you maybe treat it with caution, and then um, you know really try to inform yourself as much as possible. Um, and I know a lot of people, and I suppose in today's society, the way things have panned out is that there seems to be a lot of resistance. They um, what would you call it? Authoritative guidance. So we've got a lot of skepticism around the politics. Mm. You know, people question mainstream politics, and people are also uh, questioning big time mainstream science. Mm. You know, they're looking at quick fixes. There's people that sound impressive. They look impressive, and they're providing information that sounds amazing, um, and they're believing it because they want they believe in it. You know, because yeah. they've almost made their choice. But if someone sounds if coming from more of a a mainstream source then they're straight away oops, the government's lying days they're in uh-huh. bed with pharma <laughs> and all the rest of it um, and I think it's about having an open mind trying to give yourself the tools to critically uh, critically interpret the information and then using uh, reputable websites so some examples I suppose instead of talking about it there's some in terms of diet there's some really really good websites uh, sources of information so I'm a member of the British Dietetic Association, the BDA, uh, which is the UK Association for Dietitians. All right, so um, you know you'll have some good food fact sheets on that. Um, the Irish equivalent of that is Indy. Uh, they'll have some information on their website as well um, for certain types of diets, for certain you know trying to achieve certain things. The British Heart Foundation, fantastic resources on there in relation to um, uh, managing your weight, heart health. But there's a really nice uh, uh, resource on there in terms of food labeling. So um, you can go on there, download. Uh, there's a wee card that tells you what's high in sugar, what's you know what would be considered high in sugar, fat, salt, and so on. And those types of tools that would be useful for when you're choosing your foods as well. What other? Um, for, for anybody that's interested in going and studying um, the British Nutrition Foundation, some good online courses for people that have an interest. And nutrition that'll give you good I think it's only about maybe thirty pounds or so and you mm. would pay, go on, do the online course, it'll give you the fundamentals of nutrition. Um what other types of uh websites? Um NHS uh choices is good as well. Um it's just for really that you know, level of information that you can you know the your average person in the street who doesn't have a background in science or, or, or nutrition can can understand, you know. Mm. Um 
obviously then um, if you're looking at specific websites you know look at the person uh, in terms of dietitians in the UK and Ireland the title of dietitian is legally protected so not everybody can call themselves a dietitian um, so you need to go through an accredited course so if somebody's a dietitian then you can be sure that they've gone through a course that's accredited accredited and their practice should be meeting certain standards um, for nutritionists um, currently anybody can call themselves a nutritionist but there is an association for uh, nutritionists or uh, so it's AFN so if somebody is AFN accredited then they've gone through an accredited course um, and they've met certain criteria uh, in order to be registered a registered nutritionist mm. and so on so looking at the individual do they have credentials that, that look legit um, and are well and, and are well um, you know grounded in, in evidence-based nutrition um, and then if they if they do um, if their credentials look okay then then maybe you can put a wee bit more yeah um, trust in them more trust in them that's mm. a word I'm looking for now it's getting a lot <laughs> starting to lose, <laughs> lose me I think think of the words anymore food's such a personal thing to people too isn't it and they become it nearly becomes a part of their identity you know the way that they eat and then they can obviously be very vocal about that yes and I think just asking somebody questions is a good way they see if they have any biases you know if they get really defensive about a certain aspect of nutrition you know there's probably a bit of bias going on here no big time um, and, that's, and that's again uh, without labouring the point too much it is and that's where we come back to the individually uh, take, making the the, and the advice that you provide or you know the approach that you take individualised to the person and tailored to the person um, it's really important to do that um, and you're right people it's a really, really it's a social thing where our, our social lives are built around food mm. um, you know and if you're changing that in some way and that's where I would have questions around these fad diets and so on that's, people are becoming isolated almost they're yeah. going on the ketogenic diet and then going out into a restaurant they can't eat anything like you know what I mean and it's like how do you fit them with your friends and, and that's where I think about the practical stuff and that's where people should really consider it how can I adopt this diet first of all ask yourself is the diet providing me with the nutrients that I require so maybe even basic knowledge of looking you know am I getting all the food groups as part of this and then thinking about the practical implications of putting it on the practice, you know, and, and being, you know, as is possible for me to sustain and so on. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the, the personal uh, beliefs that people have in terms of their foods, it's it's really about empowering people. They make choices. Mm. So I think certainly uh, as dietitians, we would, uh, you know, we don't try and tell people what to be eating. We try and give people the information. Um help people identify potential barriers or potential you know ways in which they can change their behaviors and then we implement i suppose approaches behavioral change um you know uh, approaches in order to allow the individual to make a choice so if they can be provided with reliable information based on the evidence that we currently have um and it aligns with an outcome um, then they're more likely to make that change themselves or make a decision themselves and then make that change themselves mm-hmm. so if somebody comes in who wants to lose weight, um, you know, it would be easy to say, right, well, look, you're you're consuming far too much energy. You need to reduce your portion sizes and all the rest that you need to do X, Y, and Z and just leave it at that. They're not going to do it or are unlikely to do it unless they're really motivated. But if you come and have a conversation with somebody, as you say, Aiden, asking questions about their background, so you go through a full assessment, you know, what is their, 
you know, why do they want to lose weight? You know, do they want to get on the address they go to a wedding in six months' time? And then you can start to use those wee nuggets of information to say, well, look, in order to, you know, to do that, you know, there's certain things that you, you could be doing in relation to your diet. You know, what do you think you could be, what do you think you could be doing? So put asking the questions of them of what they might do in order to help them achieve their goals um, and then letting the individual make the decision themselves. And if we make a decision ourselves, we feel autonomous. If we feel that we're in control of the situation, we're more likely to comply with that situation. Mm. Whereas if we're, we feel like we're getting told what to do, although that approach might work for some people, but in general, um, we tend not to um, want to be told what to do. Yeah. Um, and therefore, um, uh, you know, it's important to allow people to be part of the decision-making process. So Blaine, basically, in your case, we're not going to be dictating to you what you have to do. <laughs> we're going to be providing you with the information and asking you, how do you think that you could be meeting your nutritional requirements? <laughs> and we'll come to an agreement. And we'll sign it in blood then. Sure. <laughs> Will we touch supplements just before we wrap up? I know we did a wee bit. What's your, what's your view on supplements relative to, to health and sport? So um, there was a really good program for, I suppose, your listeners that could go and... and, and um, Watch, it'll be on BBC iPlayer. Uh, is it BBC iPlayer? I think it was. Ask a Doctor, I think. It was up, uh, it'll be on BBC iPlayer. It was around what, supplements. What's recently. the show called? I can't even remember now. Was it Horizon? Horizon. One of my PhD supervisors was on it, actually. Um, uh, he was being interviewed. Um, quite brief, actually, his interview. But he was involved with the European Food Safety Authority, which regulates food claims. So for any foods or food products that... Uh, have a health claim they need to go through a really stringent process to prove that they they can actually uh, improve their health but what i would recommend for your listeners is they maybe go and uh, listen uh, watch that and basically the main message that came from that and the message that i would would give anyway is the fact that you know we're not seeing widespread deficiencies of micronutrients Hmm. in the population so most of us are getting what we need um so the short answer to the question is most of us will not need a supplement for health um, you have the supplement companies all, uh, you know, say they optimize your health. Mm. You know, we're all running at low levels, but we're not. We're subclinical, and we're not necessarily uh, getting sick. But we, if if you boost it, then this will make you even more healthier. Um, the evidence isn't there to back yeah, that up. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so for the general population in terms of health, we don't need supplements. Um, if your diet's really restricted, if there is uh, some issues around the diet, you know, if, if there's eating disorders and so on, then there might be certain cases in which supplements might might be warranted. But that should be done in conjunction with a relevant health healthcare professional or a mm-hmm. GP or so on. Mega doses. If you're going to take a supplement, mega doses are not required. Um, some people like taking a supplement as an insurance, but I suppose just to reassure your listeners, um, most people are getting enough. Um, so do you? Take any supplements, or do you, do you know a lot of people give uh, multivitamins to, to their children? Do you do that now? Up to the age of five, now it's recommended that um, children are receive a supplement. So there are mm-hmm. certain situations in which, in which supplements. I should highlight this, I suppose, as a healthcare professional as well. So <laughs> there are, the in terms of the general population in general, we don't need supplements. But recently, in the past couple of years, uh, the UK government have uh, published guidelines on vitamin D. So vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin that's mm. um, you know um, synthesized through exposure to sunlight, UV uh, light, UVB rays, and we don't get a lot of it anyway, and even in the summer. But given the latitude that we're at um, during the winter months, I think it's from October to April or October to March, we don't make enough or get enough vitamin D from sunlight. 
there are some dietary sources um eggs oily fish and so on but the government recommend that we do take a supplement of yeah. vitamin d so that's everybody that's everybody so i think it's around 10 micrograms per day yeah. i think is it vitamin d that's in milk too you can't get it in milk but isn't it isn't it if you go skimmed you're losing the fat content in milk and it's a fat soluble vitamin yep. so you'll not get so, so that's the thing about restricting fat in a diet that it limits our ability to absorb fat soluble vitamins as well yeah. so that's a really important point as well we you probably talk about in another show yeah. as well like but it is it's true yeah. um so if there's uh, a lack of fat there then the, the, the vitamin d is contained within the fat mm. uh, uh particles um so if, if it's really a low fat product then you're not necessarily going to get a lot from there we probably don't get enough vitamin d from our diet so we do need a supplement yeah. in order to keep levels up and there's nothing going over like obviously most people don't know whether they're deficient in vitamin d them taking a vitamin d supplement they can't overdo it can they you can eh? you can you can that's that's an important point that maybe not a lot of people are aware of is that um you can have too much of a good thing so we talk about hydration earlier on you know too much water will be really really harmful harmful mm. for health and it's the same for uh, vitamins um so vitamins um for example you get water soluble vitamins and fat soluble vitamins vitamin d there, there will be levels of intake um you shouldn't get them through supplements I, I would be fairly sure that the supplement companies wouldn't sell them at levels in which you would be consuming so much that it would become toxic um but because it's fat soluble it tends to be stored within the body then it can be at a certain level become toxic so it would be important not to take too much so mm-hmm. 10 micrograms per day is what's recommended in order to maintain healthy requirements but just to illustrate the point that we make in relation to mega doses i was going to talk about mega doses and then there's no need for them really when i talk about mega doses i mean a thousand percent of the recommended daily yeah. intake yeah. you know all this sort of stuff people think if you have more of it that's better mm. not necessarily the case um so vitamin b uh two uh, riboflavin for example if i'm remembering that right <laughs> um so you'll, you'll pick me up on it anyway if i'm wrong but basically that's used as a food coloring uh, as a food additive um and just as an example if you're taking b vitamins or a multivitamin and your pee turns really bright yellow you're at vitamin b2 that's riboflavin you're peeing out it's just basically your body going right well look do i need it no and getting enough in the diet and mm-hmm. it excretes it so i've had that before yeah. Yeah. Uh, it nearly looks nuclear that's, <laughs> that's exactly what it is nearly light up in the dark and all <laughs> so uh i haven't tested that so yeah. if you're doing the, hydra- the hydration <laughs> protocol keep that in mind as well because that, that could uh put you somewhere on the urine chart mm-hmm. that might skew the results so i i suppose just the i think just to highlight a couple of important points as well aiden um the vitamin d yeah during the winter months here in ireland um would be recommended a supplement um and it could be a run of the month supplement there's not be a really big branded supplement now there is certain vitamin d forms and i'm not 100 percent. i'm mm. afraid i can't say off the top of my head but most supplements would be fine you know out of, out of your uh, stores in terms of uh children you ask children that doesn't answer the question um up to the age of five um it's recommended the children receive a daily supplement of a d and c possibly um, so Abidec would be an example. So um, receiving a supplement uh, that would be important mm-hmm. um, for the children for for children up to the age of five. That's recommended. Um, and then pregnant women as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously folic acids. Maybe some people mm-hmm. would have seen it in the news in relation to 
uh, the adverse outcomes in pregnancy. So they're all about now fortifying flour uh, in order to ensure everybody gets enough folate in the diet. Mm. But pregnant women, that's really important at the preconception as well. And I know not a lot yeah. of pregnancies are planned, or not a lot, maybe some pregnancies, at least they're not planned. But the first 12 weeks of um, you know, the pregnancy, and some research up at our department is showing that even beyond that, after the after. 12 weeks, can be beneficial in terms of cognition and outcomes in the mm. in the in the child as well. So, so certain population groups um, in which supplements would be re- would be recommended. But it, for the general population, if we're thinking about mm. uh, generally, then a multivitamin supplement you don't need it yeah. if you're eating a varied diet, um, and that's demonstrated through the lack of deficiencies. You know there are mm. certain now, I suppose, with poverty increasing and so on, the likes of rickets, which would be vitamin D deficiency and so on, might be becoming more prevalent. But it's not widespread, which would indicate that people are getting enough from their diet. Mm. But that program, I would recommend going on and watching that if you, if if you're any of your listeners have a, mm. have an interest in it, yeah. it, was, it was a good watch. We'll dig out the link to it and stick a link in the, the comments of this. Mm. Our listener questions, we oh. kind of we kind of covered them, but they'll forgot oh. about them. I what what were they? We um, did gels anyway. Uh, Marco actually had one on in our group chat. They were saying about. Microwave. I don't know if he was taking right. a hand saying that <laughs> Aston does he use a microwave, but that does is there any difference to foods microwave cooked as opposed to In terms of nutrition, no yeah. um microwaves um interact with water. So it's yeah. the water content. What they do is they make a water uh, the water in the in the foods vibrate yeah. and heat and that's where you're getting the heat from. In terms of nutrition, I'm not aware of microwaving foods. Um, having an adverse impact impact on the nutritional content of the food huh. can have an adverse impact on how it tastes. Taste. I yeah. was going to say that. How much you're going to eat that way, like you know. But no, I wouldn't be concerned. I would. Use, I would use a microwave, no bother. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but I, I don't really like using it too much, but just pure, purely for me personal huh. taste. There is a microwave on the the last transition zone. There is. Uh, yeah. We had a question on on Instagram from Louise Crofton. Um, it was about fueling during the race. I suppose we covered that. Um, she said she usually uses Mars bars and jellies, but it ends up upsetting her stomach. Um, you always see that, uh, you know, like a Mars bar, Snickers. Would that be advisable, or are you better with gels? And if it, if it would be a good source of energy. So from the point of view of um, energy, then Mars bars might be good. But this day, I think we talked about it briefly, is the digestive, digestive mm. process. So Mars bars will have a certain amount of fat in it which will take longer, but the fat in the stomach basically delays stomach gastric emptying. So it'll delay, it'll prolong the time it takes for, I suppose, for it to pass through and the small intestine then for it to be absorbed. So potentially for, is it Lorraine, is it? Louise. 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 Um, for Louise, then it would be a case of maybe trying some that might be predominantly carbohydrate based and then seeing if that helps. Mm. Um, something else that might be worth considering as well is the volume or how she's consuming them is she consuming them at the same time or a lot of a lot of it um, mm. so maybe trying to again bringing it back to her training regime and seeing what works for her um, but I think maybe potentially what could be happening there is the fat is delaying the gastric emptying yeah. and that's causing cramps mm. maybe yes. so it's only worth considering you would imagine that's a killer too nausea and cramps like it's just going to ruin your uh. your event but a similar question from Ryan Williams that um, only he uses gels as opposed to the mm. the Mars bars, but again he gets cramps. Is there, is there any alternatives? Is there anything you can make at home that that has a is a like better a remedy? remedy? 
based on our conversation that we that we've just had, you know, obviously what we're trying to do uh, during endurance running is they replace the glycogen stores or pre- prevent the policing of the glycogen stores and ensure that there's an adequate source of carbohydrates so people can think outside the box, I suppose, and 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 try to you know, is there anything that you can make at home that would provide the carbohydrates? Yeah. Um, that would be easy to make and easy to carry around. Um, there's loads and loads of products out there. What I would suggest doing is uh, trying a range of products and, and consuming them in different mm. ways uh, in preparation for a race and seeing if that makes any difference. What I would su- I suppose I don't know if I talked about why you would get the cramps as well, but it might be useful for those for, for those who might not be aware is that whenever we exercise, the the body redirects blood away from the gastrointestinal tract. So the muscles so that's where the priority lies so basically your ability to digest and absorb foods is uh, reduced um and so if you eat certain types of foods or certain quantities of foods or fluids then uh, that is not conducive or you're not used to doing it then it can cause these types of symptoms and i suppose just as we were talking about in, in blaine's case is uh is put factor it in uh, you know going out and doing your runs but also maybe you know practicing your rehydration and yeah. and your protocols which are going to put on the place mm-hmm. for the races as well and seeing what works for you um and then find them once you find that sweet spot almost again yeah. there's always we uh, puns <laughs> uh food uh cues once you find that thing for you um you know crack on with that it might yeah. work for it might not work for you or it might not work for the next person but if it works for you work work away with that like you mm. know um, I hope that answers the questions, but it's again, I suppose it's not a magic bullet, but it's maybe giving them a way of identifying what yeah. might work. You know, a lot of diet, the whole thing comes down to just see what works for you. And that's that's thing, like, isn't it? It's yeah. hard to give general prescriptions to people. Yeah. Um, we covered a lot there, didn't we? That's good. Yeah. Um, right, these questions get a bit uh, deep. <laughs> what what's the accomplishment you're most proud of? Professional. Professional or even uh, what do you want to listen? To? <laughs> do you want to listen about me or what? <laughs> You've probably heard enough about me. How long have we been chatting? Yeah. Um, ooh, so that's a, a, a accomplishment that I've been most proud of. Um, well, I suppose what I was doing today. There was a PhD away day where we had to go and do a career talk, and I had to do it. So I had to reflect on it a wee bit. Over the past, like my background doesn't tradition wasn't traditionally in nutrition, so I studied Irish history and politics when I was younger. Um, I came back and actually retrained in the area of of dietetics. Um, so came back as a mature student. Um, sacrificed a lot. They they uh, get reeducated in the in the field and trained to be a dietitian and so on. Um, and that started that journey started really in two thousand and seven, and it's only really finished in the past couple of years. Um, so personally, my accomplishment, my that I'm most proud of is is going through that journey and. Um, being able to achieve so I set out to get that get be qualified as a nutrition professional do a PhD then so I've set goals for myself to, to do a PhD build a career in research and I've achieved um, what I can up till now so I've got a, a lectureship post now that gives me the, the opportunity to go and really um, try and achieve goals now related to my research that might have an impact on people's lives but I should point out, and it is going to get a wee bit deep in terms of that, but it's the people who are behind you. Um, so it was uh, Melissa, my wife, um, who encouraged me to go back and retrain. You know what mm. I mean? I wouldn't have done it. All my mates will tell you I was the boy that would have talked about 
uh, traveling and going to you know going to America. They love for mm. a while, and I never thought that that was a chicken. Like I was accepted onto the history and politics course in Queens, um, but never went. I chickened mm. out of going to Belfast. That's the sort of boy I was. I talk about it a lot, and I never did it. But Melissa really pushed me. Uh, ten years ago, they do it, and I went and done it, and she supported me through the through the course. I wasn't making any money, if any any any, any money at all. So you need that support in the background. Mm-hmm. So I suppose me, the accomplishment I'm most proud of is what I've done over the, the past 10 years, maybe, and got there where I've got now, but it's only really starting mm-hmm. now when you think about what I'm doing now at the minute. What age were you when you decided to go back and, and get into dietetics? It's about 26. 26. So, I, so I'm 30, 38 now. Mm-hmm. Make a grown man cry thinking about that. <laughs> but, uh, so I spent, that's a joke that, that, I run, that, that runs all the time. I've been in school now for about... Or in education for about 27 years, 28 years or something in my life. All uh-huh. the 10 years of my life I've been learning, really. Um, so I was 26. And, uh, and what was it? What were you doing when you were 26? Where was it you were working? I was out the MOT centre in New Bolton was working. And uh, I suppose the job was grand. Like I'd paid the bills and all the rest of it. And it's the same as everybody else. The office work and it was grand. Hey, you know, but it just it was boring. Hmm. wasn't necessarily content on the job. wasn't satisfying, you know, me. In terms of what I wanted to do, I felt I could do more. And I was saying about it today during the presentation. That's why it's fresh in my head. Um, that back back then you could you could only get access to the BBC website <laughs> for news. So you get all your work done in the office and all. It wasn't you were your back wasn't broken. Anyway, let's put it that way. So you go on the BBC website. Now I'm a big football fan. So you go on to watch the latest news about Celtic or what's what's happening in the transfer market or whatever. And you can only spend so much time doing that. Hmm. Gradually, then I would start looking at the news, so going on the, the local news, and then there's a health section on the BBC website. So I started reading that, and then every so often you'd see an article on nutrition. And uh, that, coupled with the fact that I started to maybe put on a wee bit of weight myself and became more conscious of health myself, just the, the interest in nutrition grew, and that happened over maybe three or four years. Um, and then started talking about changing career. So through conversations with Melissa, it was what, what will I do? What am I interested in? And nutrition was, I was reading books about nutrition. So that, that's why I made the, the choice. So I suppose that answers Some the question. There, like, isn't yeah. it? I turned it in the head, hey, you yeah. know, so it's worked out. I'm really happy that it's worked out so yeah. far. I'm in a really good job. Flat than that. Really, really flat mm-hmm. out. And I'm struggling with the balance. And that's another thing as well. And that it can impact your, your health behavior. So I don't necessarily mm-hmm. need the healthiest lifestyle myself, even though I have the knowledge. And that's an important point to consider. And you can arm yourself with all the knowledge, but it doesn't answer all the questions. Mm-hmm. So the balance, I'm trying to get the balance right at the minute between work and life. Yeah. Um, but once I get there, I'll be on the pike's back, hopefully. Uh, it's it's inspirational too, but right. you know, they, they think a, a lot of people, they, they just get set in their ways. They get into a certain job and then that's them. And then they, they might stay in the same, same role for 40 years and they might be miserable when you see, you know, your job is is taking up so much of your life. You might as well be uh, happy doing it. Um, and that's that's something that you just said. You know, that's something I would want to want to go for. And twenty six just decided I'm doing something else. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the there's a lot of sacrifices made. So you have to make a decision. And I wasn't aware of all the sacrifices you end up making. Like it was, you know, um, stopped going out with the mates. You know, because mm. I didn't have the money to head out with them. So you lose touch with people. You know, Melissa wanted to get married, couldn't get married because I didn't have the money. You know. It's just all, it's too usual, it's life, you know yeah. what I mean? I made a decision, I'm lucky that I was able to be in a position to make a decision, so I feel mm. privileged that I was able to do that, but most people can, like, you know. Yeah. I wouldn't have done it if I didn't have somebody there pushing me mm. on to do it, yeah. that's a fact. So, uh, 
that's it. So I'm really happy and proud of the accomplishment over the past lot of years. But um, you have to acknowledge you, you need, well, as a man, or you know, as a man, you need a good woman behind you to, to push you on, mm. and vice versa. I'm sure, like, so I, if if you're interested in someone and, and it's someone that you want to pursue, hey, crack on with and and mm. try and do it. You know, because uh, you're right. That's a really important point. We're only here for a short time. You mm-hmm. may as well do something you enjoy doing, like. This is getting deep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right, will we wrap it up because I'm getting texts from Sarah about dinner. (laughs) My phone's Uh, dead. uh, My wife's probably (laughs) 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 right. She knows I'm not going to waste away anything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wait, will we guess time and get a photo? Ah, Hmm. time. So it's 24 hours. it has, to, it has to be finished in 24 hours. Has, right? uh, if you don't finish 24 hours, they just call it quits. Uh, they pull you off just. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> That's a story for an hour, day. Eh? Uh, that's going to sound bad, isn't it? Are you going to put that on it? <laughs> um, I have to guess the time, so. Ah, oh, jeez. I should have done my research and looked at previous do, times. Do you want to see previous times or anything? Aye, or? Yeah. Even, even shout out a range of times, even. Uh, well, thank once uh, I'll pu- I'll pull it up here. The top ten usually come in about seventeen hours, and then once once you get down to about thirty, yeah, they're all coming in plus twenty hours, and then it goes right up to people are coming in, you know, only five minutes to go or whatever. Really? Like, so. well, I think you'll do it do a couple of hours this spare, I think you know. Or actually, you're what age? You're only your mid twenties or something. I'm 29 tomorrow. 29. Oh, no, I don't know how you're fucked then. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me see. You're uh, going to be part of the 30% drop. <laughs> yeah. So, what, what do we say? Are you down to a minute, are you? Or, so, uh, we'll uh, Google a minute. Uh, so, I'd say uh, I'd say 22 hours, 7 minutes or something. Yeah. Uh, right? Well, actually, we're giving, we're giving everyone two guesses because the weather pay, plays a big part on right. the day. So, you have choice of it's a good day and choice of it's right. a bad day. So, Favorable conditions. Yeah. Um, so I think a wor- wor- worst case, I think that would be maybe a, a the worst case scenario. I would imagine. I think maybe. Uh, so twenty two hours, seven minutes if conditions aren't favorable, and then I think maybe you could maybe knock a half hour off that maybe, if if they yeah. are favorable. I think uh. maybe maybe as a aye. so we'll go with that, will we? Uh, yeah. Twenty one. Perfect. Whatever that is. Uh. Thirty seven. We get, every time we get someone to guess, we say, oh, we'll decide a prize for the next time what the, the winner gets, but we still don't know what they're yeah, getting. So. Plenty of time, anyway. Uh, well, I, I I can request a prize if I get it right then. It's supposed uh, to be a 12-week body transformation. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So you can sure be right. a quick fix and I'll be on all <laughs> fall of bad days. So I need somebody behind me to motivate me to actually do some exercise. <laughs> Is that us then? Is that uh, yeah, that was really good there. Should we have a times? Uh, uh, we need to get a photo too, just, but we'll, we'll wrap it up anyway. Uh, thanks for coming on as well. Uh, uh, we appreciate your hopefully time. Hopefully it was it's useful. Uh, I didn't waffle around too uh, much. Uh, uh, there's loads there uh, that you give for people. It's going to be really useful for anybody mm-hmm. listening, even yeah. for a, from a health perspective. Uh, so really appreciate you coming no, on. Later on. No, it's great. Hey, no, I enjoyed it. So uh, all, all, I suppose I should put it on record. All the best for this. Uh, I'll keep an eye out for how things pan out and we'll keep in touch anyway won't ah, we, for definitely. Maybe some, mm. getting some things put in place. Ah, Stop. Yep. This is speaking the Coasty 250k podcast. You can follow our journey online at the Coasty 250k Facebook page, Instagram or AidenDollyFitness.com.